Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson. I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's been a busy couple of weeks. How's the new year treating you? Uh, it's a little chaotic. <laughs> yes. Everything going on in the world, but also in my life. But uh, it's good so far. I, I say it with an asterisk, knowing <laughs> hiding under the desk. <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I'm in the same boat. It's been crazy. I'm. I'm back at school, back in Arizona. Baseball's finally picking up. Today was a particularly busy day with all of yeah. the uh, arbitration settlements. Uh, the international floodgates open today as well. It sounds like, or it seems like, the uh, offseason itself is picking up. Some more trades and signings lately. So we do have a ton of news to cover today. Fantastic. Let's get into it. Awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and warn you listeners right out the gate that these are not in the... <laughs> Not in the most uh, organized uh, order. Uh, I have about 20 tabs open here, and I think they're in a, a coherent order, but they're not necessarily chronological or anything, so uh, don't be don't be looking for that here. Um, so we're just going to be bouncing around. We're going to start with the trades, then go into the signings, and then uh, into some more rumored moves. So starting out with a bit of a minor trade here. The Yankees acquired Greg Allen from the Padres um, about a week and a half ago. Uh, in exchange for left-handed reliever James Reeves. So Greg Allen was DFA'd by San Diego. He was originally acquired in the uh, Mike Clevenger deal, fourth, fifth outfielder type, has some speed, had a little bit of prospect pedigree at one point, really just never hit at all on the big league level. Defense wasn't quite what you would hope for from a guy with his speed, so he's really, he's a fourth or fifth outfielder, and that's probably all he'll ever be. He's uh, yep. getting into his... I don't have an age pulled up right here. I believe he's like 27. Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, a depth guy, right. And mm-hmm. look, it's going to be a long season. You're going to need depth guys, and that's that's all he provides. So they didn't give yep. up much, and he doesn't provide all that much. So there you go. Yep. He's about to turn 28. He'll turn 28 before the season starts. And James Reeves is a 27-year-old minor league reliever who has yet to make his MLB debut. So that kind of... That's kind of indicative there of yeah, the type so of player. Yeah, it's a fair getting. trade from from our point of view. It's like a zero and a zero one or something like that. So yeah, it's right on. Yeah, Reeves is a lefty, so at least he's got that going for him. And Allen's got some speed, so at least he's got that going for him. But chances are this is nothing. Yeah. All right. Um, next, we'll. <laughs> this is a this is a bit of a different trade here. It's it's the big one. It's the one that everyone freaked out about a week and a half ago. Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco headed to the Mets. Steve Cohen finally made his big splash, gets the gets the Mets spending again. He picks up those two stars in exchange for Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez, a pair of young infielders, as well as two younger prospects, Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green. Uh, Wolf, a right-handed pitcher, and Green, an outfielder. So this one was very, very close, almost perfect. Um, by our value standards, we had 41.6 million in value headed to New York and 40.1 headed to Cleveland overall. And I think that was, I think it was right about in line with what we expected. I think a lot of people were expecting a bit more in return just because Lindor is the big name. And then you factor in, oh, Carrasco, he's been so good too. Um, but a lot of people, those people that were thinking that way, likely weren't considering the salary implications and the current market and uh, the fact that Lindor, as of this point, is only a rental. I know the Mets are going to do everything they can to extend him, but you can't really factor that too heavily into the trade values themselves. 
Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. So first of all, so we were pretty consistently right around the same sort of general vicinity with Lindor all off season, <clears throat> you know, right around in the low thirties. And so, you know, we had him at like 32 something. Um, and, and, and that I think proved out to be true. I mean, he, he you know, he's, we were going to see what he makes in arbitration this final year, but it's looking to be somewhere around the 21 million mark. Good player coming off a of sort of not his best year. Um, so the protections are not quite superstar level, even though everyone thinks of him as a superstar. Good player, but you know, you also sort of command a premium. We built that in, um, the uh, premium you get for having a superstar and he's more marketable. We also built in the uh, potential draft pick if you were to offer him the qualifying offer at the end of the year and you were to decline it, you would get a draft pick. And so that's baked into the number as well. So all of that sort of adds up to his value. Um, I got a lot of questions about Carlos Carrasco's value. A lot of people seem to think we were too low on him and I feel vindicated to some degree. Like he's, he was right on the money, I think. Um, you know, cause we talked about it last time. Um, if you imagine him as a free agent, what would he get in free agency? And, uh, you know, in this case, I think we, it works out to, uh, you know, about, if you add our numbers up, about 235, meaning around 17-ish AAV, and that's about where he went, because he's getting a guaranteed $27 million over the next two years, and we added on the 8.8, so it's like 35, 36. That's about what he would get in a free agency uh, deal as a sort of 34 or 35-year-old, you know, with some health problems, so... Um, feel vindicated on that front. Also feel vindicated. A lot of people thought we were too low on Ahmed Rosario. You know, he has some prospect pedigree. People used to think of him as that top prospect, but he's never really panned out. And now he's sort of, he's past the point where he's a prospect anymore. You dig into the numbers and he, he looks like he's, you know, he got beaten out of a shortstop job. And the Mets had said before they traded him that he was going to be a utility guy. And if you dig into the numbers, he can't really hit righties. He's a platoon guy. He hits lefties very well, like a 129 WRC plus, but his splits are really, so he's like a 70 against, against, uh, yeah, against righties. So he's a short side platoon utility guy is what he sort of settled into here. Um, maybe the the Indians can f figure out something else to do with him. But, um, you know, I think that's why, you know, people thought, oh, they're not going to get two shortstops back. Well, they got one shortstop and a utility guy back. <clears throat> so and then two prospects who were sort of, you know, got some upside and they're fairly young. So I think that's that's interesting part of the return as well. But I feel like it's a good sort of fair trade for both sides. I think. You know, in this market, Cleveland wasn't going to get a huge overpay for either one of these guys, and that's the way it worked out. Yeah, I uh, on on Rosario there as a prospect, he was kind of hyped as uh, as a little bit. I, I don't want to go as far as to say Andrelton Simmons ish, but that similar kind of profile where everyone liked the glove a lot. They they all saw it as a sure thing to be a well above average shortstop defender. Uh, the bat needed to come around a little bit, but there was good contact potential and even a little bit of power in there. And then he comes up, and the glove itself was shaky. Yeah. That that surprised a lot of people. There's, there's a lot of factors there, some positioning questions, um, a little bit of a difficulty having J.D. Davis to one side of him, and then an old Robinson Cano on the other side of him. Or sometimes, <laughs> Not getting any help either side, yeah. Yes. Sometimes Jeff McNeil, who, you know, kind of, kind of being pushed to play all these different positions, maybe having some issues there as well. Um, so the glove hasn't exactly panned out, and when the glove doesn't pan out, you need the bat too. And it, like as you explained, against right-handed pitching, it really hasn't for him. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to mention on Isaiah Green and Josh Wolf. This is the third consecutive trade here, uh, counting Blake Snell and uh, Hugh Darvish trades, 
where we are working a little bit shorthanded on those guys, on those lower level prospects that are included here. Um, we are still in the process of, as, as we always do, we update prospects throughout the off season as the publications that we use um, release their updated evaluations of those prospects. And so there are a couple degrees here of uncertainty special to this off season and to this specific time that we're in right now, where first of all, a lot of those prospect evaluators are working with far less information, given that there was no minor league season last year and not every team allowed um, evaluators into their uh, alternate sites or into instructs in the fall. Not every team opted into data sharing and video sharing. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. And we just have a lot of uncertainty on our end because a lot of those publications haven't released their evaluations for certain teams yet or even at all in some cases. So Isaiah Green and Josh Wolf, similarly to, I believe it was Blake Hunt in the Blake Snell trade, um, and then a, a handful of the younger minor leaguers in the U Darvish trade. Uh, these were all guys that as soon as it came out that they were traded, you see prospect evaluators saying, yes, we had them rising. We had them as maybe a back-end top 100 type. Yeah. They are really kind of <clears throat> blowing up right now. And that's something that we, you and I, we have no way of seeing until after the trade goes through. Well, we're working on that. At least I'm working on that <laughs> for yeah. a potential future upgrade. But it's a great point right now. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we're working for, um, you know, on what the information we have that's released to the public, right? Um, so <clears throat> as that's updated, then, then we'll... Um, you know, sometimes in the case of the Darvish trade, I, I did a, a number crunch of it afterwards. And then like everybody, you know, to your point, some some guys were changed. And, the, and that one turned out actually much closer than when we first had it as a result of that. So sometimes that can happen as well. But, um, you know, I'm not sure how much this will change. I know Baseball America has been um, good. They've I think they finished all 30 of their top 10s. But mm-hmm. some of these guys are below the top 10 levels. So we'll see when the next uh iteration comes out you know where they fall right um fan graphs is a little behind schedule as they tend to be very thorough and and eric longening who runs that is very upfront about the fact that you know he hasn't been able to see them all he's 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 <laughs> crediting where his sources are whether it was video or it was alternatives or wherever sources from other you know other scouts and so on so he's working with what he's got and he's being upfront about that right right and especially difficult for him this year without kylie mcdaniel the two yep. of them used to be kind of a one-two punch knocking out the uh, the organizational prospect lists at fan graphs together and now mcdaniel's with espn so longenhagen in this weird where is weird year weird world right now is kind of on his own with these so <laughs> we understand why it's taken so long we'll be patient yeah <laughs> all right i think that's that's enough on that for now we can touch on that more later when we discuss the uh the article you wrote this week this last week okay so now to another minor trade here uh, the Phillies acquired Sam Coonrod from the Giants, right-handed reliever, in exchange for pitching prospect Carson Ragsdale. Um, this is the Phillies are continuing to revamp their bullpen, and as I've said before, every time they acquire someone with a pulse, it's an upgrade. The bullpen <laughs> was historically awful in 2020, and you know Coonrod, he's got good spin rate, he's got good velocity, control's not quite there, and the track record definitely isn't there. Uh, but at least he's he's upside. He's similar in a way, obviously far less track record, but similar in a way to Jose Alvarado, who they traded for a few weeks back, mm-hmm. in that these guys can throw 100, they know the upside is there, and right now Dave Dombrowski and the Phillies are willing to bet on that. 
you know, <clears throat> we're at this interesting point though, where there's a lot of guys like that. I mean, it's almost become an inside joke. You know, he's he's like 95 and a slider, or 98 and a slider. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a ton of there's a bunch of those guys, and a lot of them just don't have any control. They just haven't figured out like how to pitch yet. You know, they mm-hmm. may have some stuff, but it hasn't really been finessed yet. So it strikes me as another situation like that with Coonrod in particular. Yeah, but also it's not like the Phillies are giving up quite no, all that no, much here. No, it's just a yeah, it's a lottery ticket in a way. Yeah, exactly. So there goes that one. Uh, and then the biggest blockbuster here. The uh, Athletics picked up Nick Turley from the Pirates, left-handed reliever, uh, in exchange for cash considerations. <laughs> Earth-shattering. Yeah. Yeah. AL West is theirs to, <laughs> theirs to win. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, I mean, from a value standpoint, both these last trades were both, like, you know, 0 and 0.1 yeah. or something in that area. So, you know, we're, we're, it's fair, but they're very low. Uh, Turley just, you know, hasn't really done much, but he does have, have some mm-hmm. stuff. I do like, you know, he if you check out his ex-Woban numbers on Baseball Savant, uh, they were actually, it was 289, which for a reliever, anything under 3 typically is above average. So, mm-hmm. so that's promising. You know, and he's got some spin rates to work right. with as well, which is also promising. And, you know, unfortunately, he hasn't done much in terms of track record, so that's why he didn't cost anything. I imagine the, the cash was pretty low, and we had him at zero, so it's fair trade. But there's something to work with there, and he needs another lefty, so why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was shocked to see that he's 31. He's I, also I, out of options, uh, yeah. so it's either make or break, you know. So, But it's, you know, maybe maybe he does well in spring training, and they, they give him a shot. Yeah. He's a lefty with a pulse, <laughs> and he throws 94-95, and as you mentioned, the elite spin rates, he's going to be given a shot there at least. Chances, yeah. he might be DFA'd before the season even starts, who knows, but he's a, he's an arm. <laughs> you know, as a general rule, if you, um, if you pick up a guy who's been DFA'd by a good team, you could argue that maybe he just didn't have a spot, you know? But if you pick mm-hmm. up a guy who's a DFA from a bad team, like... Okay, he wasn't good enough for the Pirates. The <laughs> Pirates thought Tro- Troy Stokes was better than him, so like, eh, you're really reaching here, you know. <laughs> I guess the the caveat there is that the Pirates haven't been the greatest pitching talent evaluators of the last True. handful of years. Uh, yeah. That that also might be back from their previous regime. Now they have Sherrington in charge. Maybe things are starting to improve a little bit there. So maybe that's an unfair assessment, but no, I I know, but you got to think about that. You know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've spent far too long on Nick Turley. <laughs> uh, heading into some of the free agent signings, whole bunch of them here. It, it it's not quite the floodgates opening up, but. It seems like we're at least finally getting some action. A couple of the bigger dominoes have fallen, as well as some of the mid-tier guys. So let's start out here with the Nationals picking up Kyle Schwarber on a one-year, $10 million contract. It's a little uncertain exactly where he'll play because, as we've mentioned before, it's uncertain whether the National League will have the designated hitter next year. Beyond silly that we still don't know that, and it's January 15th, but okay. Um the Nationals decided to take a chance on Schwarber. Uh, he was non-tendered by the Cubs in his final year of arbitration. He really struggled in 2020, but he's he's exactly if he if he can rebound, he's the type of left-handed thump that they have been looking for. He's the type of power bat that they've wanted to kind of protect Juan Soto if you if you believe in lineup protection. Yeah, and I think this is a good deal. Um, if I remember correctly, the the structure of the contract is seven million for 2021 and then 11 million Correct. for 2022 with a three million dollar buyout so he's guaranteed 10 seven plus three 
But if he does well, then you pick up the second year at 11. And based on our modeling, that's what it looks like might happen. Um, I have him at 20.8 against for field value against that total salary of 18. So it gives him a little bit of surplus, which suggests that they would pick up the, the option. So in effect, it may be a good two-year bargain uh, for them. Mm-hmm. And now, now, again, that assumes a few things. He's going to get enough playing time, you know, to your point. Like, you know, we don't know if there's the DH. And, and notice the structure of the, the contract, though, because most people think there's definitely going to be the DH in 2022. We may be in some weird donut year where they don't have it in 2021 yeah. and they go back to it after the new CBA is agreed upon. It seems pretty sure that that's going to come back. So you notice that contract is, well, if you get them, then you'd have more playing time, right? And, and so maybe that's why there's that $11 million sort of uh, contract for 2022. Obviously, it depends on he hits well as well. But I think they structured a little bit with that thinking. And if that's the case, then I think you've got something here. We've already sort of baked in the fact that there's no no defensive value whether they play him left or not and he still get a little because he's such a good hitter you know you still get a little bit of surplus here yeah that is a mutual option uh for 2022 and mutual options are almost never exercised just because it's hard to find that middle ground where neither side wants to opt out of it um but but it is a good point there that in 2022 maybe there's more more of a natural fit for him there as we expect the DH to be implemented for that season. I also do want to point out um, when we discussed non-tenders, Schwarber was the only one who kind of stood out as probably the, as what we would have considered the least likely non-tender of that group. I believe he had about $2 million in surplus yeah. value, even That's considering right. his uh, projected arbitration rate. Yeah. And his projected arbitration rate, I believe, was in the $7.5-$8 million range. Yeah. Um, and now, so this deal guarantees him $10 million. <laughs> And we had him at 7 or $8 million plus two surplus. So it yep. sounds about right to us. Yep, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, and, and to be fair to the, the Cubs, I mean, obviously they're, they're cutting salary. But also, mm-hmm. at that non-tender deadline, there was really no certainty whatsoever about what the season would look like, you know, what the pandemic effects would be and so on. We're getting a little bit more certainty now. There's a 162-game season. We're getting a little bit more sort of maybe there'll be some fans in the stands here and there, you know, and they can start to get a picture of what they might be looking at in terms of revenue. I know we'll talk about that in a moment. But, mm-hmm. um, but you know, at the non-tender deadline, it was all just like cut costs, cut costs, cut costs, and then we'll figure it out later. And now we're starting to sort of settle in a little bit. So I don't want to blame the Cubs for making a rash decision, but I, you know, it worked out fine for everybody anyway, for Schwarber himself too. He got paid, right. you know, okay. So, so, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing if you're thinking at home, you're thinking, Oh, you know, why did the Cubs non tender him? Well, they didn't know what the 2021 season would look like at the time anyway. And that's true of a few other cases that we'll find as well. Brad hand and a few others, I think as we go. Right. And I don't think there's too much to really hold the Cubs to here. I mean, let's say they, they did tender him a contract and, Oh, look at this. He does have $2 million in surplus value. Well, that's not going to get you all that much. And even if no. he has a pretty strong first half, he'll be a rental. That's still not going to get you that much. Yeah. And so it seem, and it's not like they're going, oh, well, we, we cut Kyle Schwarber, so now we have to rebuild because we can't win without him. Let's trade Darvish. Let's trade Bryant, whatever. It's Those moves are independent of each other. It's They were going to trade Darvish no matter what. And then without Darvish, I don't think Schwarber is the difference between them contending this year. No, no. I think they're, they're making their strategy clear now. Right. So so you're right. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have mattered much. Right. Okay. Um, 
very obvious seeming move here. I mean, I think this is what a lot of people picked here uh, with the Dodgers re-signing Blake Trinan. Uh, so they brought him, they originally signed him last offseason to a one-year $10 million contract um, after the Athletics non-tendered him. A very similar situation to Schwarber there where he was projected to earn about eight or nine million in arbitration. The A's cut him because he had a pretty rough 2019 season. And then the Dodgers swooped in and gave him even more than he was projected to earn. And he performed pretty well for them. Uh, strikeouts were down a little bit, but pitched effectively and effectively enough to be re-signed to a two-year, $17.5 million deal uh, with a club option for the third year. Yeah. Sounds about right. <clears throat> Looks about right to us. Um, maybe just a teensy bit of an overpay. We have him fair value is, is closer to the 15-16 range. But uh, it's the Dodgers. They can, they can kick in a little bit. They seem to like him. So and then There's probably more they can do with him as they've gotten to know him and can work with him. So it's, it's in the ballpark. Exactly. Yeah, you look at a guy like him, and he's not the type. And I mean, this was true before his big breakout year with Oakland as well. Um, but given the stuff there, given the makeup and the just how much his sinker moves and how hard he throws it, he's not the type that you expect to have sub less than a strikeout per inning. So if, if anyone can get him back to that form where he is missing a lot of bats, it's the Dodgers. And if, if yeah. he gets even a little bit of that strikeout stuff back, he's definitely more than worth this contract you know for a team that struggled in the late innings as well one sort of sub point here is that you know a lot of clubs were moving away from sinker ball pitchers because Mm -hmm. they found through research that um there's you know the the most effective is the high fastball like you want it high that's what you know you're either getting a strikeout or a pop out or something like that and so the bias has been lately over the last couple years to if anything on the rising fastball it's sort of a misnomer but that high fastball has seemed to be more effective and more attractive to people whereas trying and he's a sinker ball guy so he's throwing low right he's trying to he's trying to get it to dip Mm -hmm. um and you know that awful 2019 season it just wasn't happening it was just dipping right in the strike zone and they were hammering it so right it's a little bit there's a little bit more margin for error with a guy like him you know if it's not working then you know yeah so he's he's very it's a very similar case to jose alvarado uh because you you see the pitching ninja clips of alvarado and you see oh my goodness he's throwing that two-seamer that sinking two-seamer 100 miles an hour and it's moving six feet and then you look at his era and it's a five six <laughs> and it's yeah right. it's because as you mentioned sinker ballers are dangerous in today's game with <clears throat> the type of loft that uh, hitters are getting on their swings it just connects perfectly with the plane of the sinking fastball right, right. so he, he, there's definitely some risk there but if anyone is willing to wear that risk it's the uh it's the dodgers with all their money so yeah, I mean, look, they've, you know, if you look at their relievers, Joe Kelly, Kenley Jansen, they got some underwater guys there in mm-hmm. terms of contract and stuff. So sometimes they don't always pan out. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I give them credit for, like, trying to find quality guys and, um, right. and you know, not being not afraid to do it. But it doesn't always work out. You can't just say, yeah, everything they touch has turned to gold because it hasn't really. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a mix, just like most mm-hmm. teams. It's a mix. I mean, they have more hits than misses, I suppose, but they've got a few misses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little interesting that the Dodgers are also the team that employs Bruce Dark Gratterall, who's mm-hmm. a very similar profile, almost almost the exact same profile of incredible velocity, incredible movement on his sinker, doesn't miss bats. Yeah. I wonder if they think they can see something there, fix something there working with these two, or maybe they just think that's an 
undervalued commodity on the market right now? I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting <clears throat> to see how those two perform over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, in Gratterall's case, he's got the velocity that you can work with, and that's always a, you know, there's a cor strong correlation between that and effectiveness, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if you have that, you've got something to work with. So imagine they're thinking, nice, well, at least we have that, and we can start there. But, you know, right. he's, he's been okay. <clears throat> They've both been pretty effective at run prevention. It's just some of the peripherals that might not agree with it so much yeah. because of the <clears throat> lack of misbats, so... Interesting to think about there. Mm -hmm. All right, another former athletic. Uh, a lot of their old free agents signing these last couple of weeks. Uh, Tigers picked up Robbie Grossman, outfielder, uh, on two-year, $10 million deal. Tigers had a pretty weak outfield they have for a few years now. Um, this seems like a bit of an odd fit. I remember back a month, month and a half ago, there was a pretty big push on from Tigers' Twitter for them to sign David Dahl when he was not tendered. And that does seem like a more natural fit with a team like the Tigers to take a bet on a younger player like that with more upside rather than a veteran in the, in the I don't want to say decline stages, but in the latter half of his career like Grossman. Yeah. Um, he did have a very strong 2020 season, uh, tapped into some power a little bit, was one of the A's most consistent hitters. And maybe they're thinking either that's a, that's a good veteran presence to have and to help uh, help some of the younger hitters on their team grow, or maybe they think they can flip him somewhere down the line yeah. at the deadline or something. I think it's both. <clears throat> yeah. I, you know, he's a professional at bat every time he mm -hmm. comes up. You know, he knows how to work the count. He knows how to take a walk. He's just, he's a smart player, and he plays a competent left field, let's say. So, you know, he's that veteran presence guy that will help out a young team like that. I think that's part of the attraction, and I think part of the attraction is they can flip him. They have a, you know, if he plays according like he has he had a bit of a swing change last year which mm -hmm. helped his game a bit and his stats and so he became a little bit more of an attractive commodity but he may very well be a guy at the deadline that, that you know that will have some interest um that's what they've been doing uh, in the last couple of years you know they they've been signing veterans and moving where they can they had cameron maiden last year they flipped and um uh, they had Jonathan Scope and Austin Romine, they didn't flip, but they probably should have. I'm not sure yeah. what happened there. But that's been their pattern. Sign a veteran to plug a hole. Hopefully they have some leadership qualities too. Flip them at the deadline if they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm obviously not... I don't know how invested the Tigers, how much how much interest they might have had in David Dahl or how much interest they've had in other outfielders. It just feels like uh, for one of those sign and flip down the road type guys, Grossman wouldn't be at the top of my list. I feel like... Given his age, given his track record, unless there's a significant continuation of the swing change and a significant continuation of the increase in exit velocity, increase in launch angle that he showed in 2020, I just don't think teams would buy into it even if he had a crazy first half. Yeah, you're probably right. And he's getting paid fairly now, whereas he was underpaid yeah. you know, with the A's. So yeah. there's not much surplus there at all right now. It's fair value. Yeah. You know, so unless he has some really, you know, good numbers coming out, you know, by July. Yeah. You know, so mm -hmm. <clears throat> if they get but anything I'm, for him, it'd be a very minor prospect. Probably. Right. Right. But I'm never going to I'm never going to ridicule or criticize a team for signing one of these types of guys to fill a spot. And it's, yeah, you know, these guys got to go somewhere and the Tigers could certainly he's certainly an upgrade for them. So I'm never going to I'm never going to chide the chide a team like that for making an upgrade. That's right. All righty. So now we have a really interesting one and keeping with this former athletics theme 
And this is Liam Hendricks going to the White Sox on one of the more unique contracts we've seen in a while, I think. Um, this is essentially the White Sox are trying to play around with the luxury tax, play around with kind of the idea of present value of money. Mm-hmm. And so they signed him to a contract that's being reported a lot of different ways, depending on how you put it. So the guarantee, if I have this right, is three years and $39 million. The, the guarantee for those first three years, I should say, is $39 million over those first three seasons. I believe I have that right. And then, yes, and then they have a $15 million club option for the fourth year. But that club option has a $15 million buyout, yep. which would be paid as $1.5 million each year for 10 years. Sort of a deferral type. Uh, the, the similar type of deferrals that we've seen the Nationals employ a lot with guys like Strasburg. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, it's it's being used as the club option. And what this does, and Ben Clemens of Fangraphs did a very, very good explanation of exactly how this works with the luxury tax. But basically, it allows them to potentially pay a whole lot less as far as luxury tax implications go in that fourth year of the contract. Mm-hmm. I believe it would just be the difference between the $15 million that he would earn and the present value of what the $15 million deferred over 10 years would be, if that makes <clears> sense. <throat> I'll go ahead and link to that Ben Clemens article so you all can read it. Yeah. It's, it's a very thorough explanation of a very confusing and weird contract. It, yeah, and and, and <clears throat> math can be boring for those of yes. you who are a lot, but, but yeah, there's, some, there's some tricky math going on here. Um, but let me, put, let me paint a different picture for you. Um, mm-hmm. So he's guaranteed $54 million. Um, so the Correct. question is, would they pick up the option in the fourth year? So at that point, they paid him 39. They still owe him 15. Our, according to our model, he'd be worth at this point 12.4. So you'd think, okay, well if we pick up the 15, getting a, still a 12 million dollar arm, and you're only losing like 2.6 in value, so why not? And if you <laughs> didn't pick up the option, you'd be paying him the the you know inflation adjusted, you know time value of money adjusted which comes out to by my mouth about 10.4 over time so you know you can lose 2.2.6 or 10.4 pick your you know so they'd probably pick it up in which case it's a four-year 54 million dollar contract in which case if you average that out it's 13.5 million dollar aav from that standpoint mm-hmm. from a sort of a, a simple budget standpoint from the luxury tax standpoint i, I thought that was a great article from, from ben clemens mm-hmm. um he also made the point that you know the White Sox have a lot of young players who will be hitting their RV years at that point. They'll be, you know, the tax hit will be greater, so this offsets that a bit the way they structured it. Yeah. So it was just a clever way. I see it as basically a, a four fifty four deal, just mm-hmm. structured cleverly for the to allow for that sort of um, luxury tax implication in the fourth year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one point Ben Clemens reached in that article was that there's the question of it's even if it's even going to be allowed <laughs> to go this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a bit of loophole trickery going on here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll have to see if, if anything further comes from this. Um, but as far as the player team fit, it's it's perfect. I mean, mm. the White Sox are the up-and-coming team. They're kind of the American League's answer to the Padres mm-hmm. with plenty of young talent all around the diamond offensively. Um, the pitching staff that they've already been working to bolster this offseason by adding a guy like Lance Lynn. 
uh, on top of Giolito and the rest of their arms there. Mm -hmm. And then an interesting young bullpen that uh, last year it was anchored by Alex Colomay. He's another one of those, he's not a sinker baller, but he's another one of those very low strikeout guys um, where you can look at that two ways. You can say, oh, he's a soft contact guy, or you can say, wow, he got lucky in 2020. <laughs> and I think yeah. I fall a little bit more to the latter. And so they could have just re-signed him but I, they, I, they couldn't have re-signed him and expected the same performance. I think it's a much better move to sign arguably the best reliever in the game right now in Liam Hendricks. Um, he's got the velocity. He's got the stuff. He's got the placement. He's incredible, incredibly fun to watch. And I think he's just going to be a great anchor for that young and I think pretty underrated overall bullpen. Yeah, don't forget, he was masterful against them in the playoffs, and I'm sure right. they noticed that. He pitched, you know, not one, not two, but three innings against them when it counted the most to win that for the A's. And so they're like, ugh, you know, so let's yeah. get this guy, you know? And, he, and he's a guy who went 49 pitches in game two, uh-huh. longest he's gone in years, and then the next day comes out, and he's still pumping 100 for the yep. save in game three. Yep, yep. Yeah, so um, I'm sure they noticed that. Yes, <laughs> firsthand. Terrible. Yes. Yeah. Um, so good fit. The value, as you mentioned, looks like it lines up pretty well. And the only real question here is how that fourth year ends up going. But as you mentioned, chances are, it be, unless something catastrophic happens, chances are that that fourth year option will be picked up. One last point about this. So um, previously, the highest AAV for a, a reliever was uh, Wade Davis, around eight, 18 million, I believe. Mm-hmm. He had a 354 contract uh, with the Rockies a few years ago, and so that's kind of been like the high point. And I often think about that when I think about how you re- compare relievers to starters, and they're generally worth about half the value if you think about it very simply that way. You get Garrett mm-hmm. Cole at about 36 million AAV. He had Wade Davis at about 18 million AAV. Um, so. But this is interesting because Hendricks, you could look at him as either, yeah, he matched the 18 million AAV, but then they still have to have that, they're going to still pay that 15. So it's, again, it's really, I think it's more of a 454 contract, which is really, meaning he's not at the $18 million AAV point, which means he's, even though one could argue perhaps he should have been. It's hard to, it's hard to sort of suss this out this way, but um, I'm wondering if it's a market indicator, like even the top reliever in the game isn't matching that that pure and simple $18 million AV. That had to do some trickery to get around it. So I'm not saying there is a, enough of a market indicator here. It may have just been a special case, but I found it interesting because I think about it as a 13.5 rather than an 18, in which case maybe yeah. you can say, eh, maybe the market's not paying that rate. Yeah. So, I think that's that's a legitimate concern, and I also I also do think though that Wade Davis was a weird case, where I think I think if I'm not <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think industry consensus at the time was wow the Rockies overpaid a little bit here. They and that had was during to, yeah that was during the Rockies off season of the bullpen yeah and we all know how that went out with the uh, Cody Allen's and I, I believe Mike Dunn was there or Jake, Jake McGee. McGee. I think it was yep. Jake McGee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, I think it was a hundred million dollar bullpen or something like yep. that. And it tanked. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and as well, uh, I'm pulling, trying to pull up right here, how old Wade Davis was at the time of that contract. But Hendricks is a little bit older than your average free agent, a little bit older than you would expect from the top yeah. free agent on the market. Um, and so I'm wondering if that played a little bit of a role. It could have, yeah. 
I mean, you know, relievers tend to skew a little bit older. You see yeah. a lot of relievers in their 30s, and that's pretty normal. Um, yeah, Hendricks is 31. He'll be 32 yeah. for the season. So this is really his 32 to 35 HC, which is still in normal range for reliever. Once you get past 35, they tend to fall off a cliff. I mean, obviously over 30 isn't as good as being in your late 20s as reliever, but it's not as terrible as some of the other positions. Mm-hmm. It does look like Wade Davis was also 32 when he signed his deal. Okay. So. So there's that. <laughs> uh, let's move on to another big deal here. This one just dropped today. It's the Yankees and DJ LeMahieu are coming back together. <laughs> It'll be a six-year, $90 million contract for LeMahieu. Um, I do not believe we know the exact specifics of this deal yet. If it's just a straight six-year, $90 million, if there's some more you know, luxury tax or club option type yeah. goofing around here. Um, but either way, I think, I think this was pretty obvious to most people. The Blue Jays showed a little bit of interest in LeMayhew. I think the Mets did as well. Um, but the Yankees were obvious, were always the most obvious fit. He's a guy who had a complete career change when he signed there after leaving Colorado. On the surface, he had a complete career change. And then you break into the numbers and he's still a significantly better hitter at home at Yankee Stadium with the short porch than he is on the road. And he doesn't even have the Coors Field excuse of the air being of the kind of reverse uh, reverse Coors, Coors Field effect on the road where Rockies hitters struggle on the road because the air is so different. He doesn't have that excuse with Yankee Stadium. So it's a very natural fit there back with the Yankees. He's still a very good player, even if his park helps him a little bit, a little bit in that Alex Bregman type mold where Alex Bregman has been using the Crawford boxes to kind yeah. of... Right. generate a lot of his power you play to the park that you're in yeah so LeMahieu gets six years 90 million I think that's a little bit of a different structure than I expected but it does make sense he's also an older free agent and yeah he's 32 I had kind of expected something along the lines of four years 80 million maybe maybe five years 90 or something like that but adding that sixth year on gives the Yankees as we were talking about before it's a lower luxury tax uh, value yeah. It leaves it with just 15 million a year, whereas if they did 480, it would be 20 million a year. So even yeah. if they don't, even if they don't get a whole lot out of Lemayu in years five and six, there, they're kind of they're getting this added benefit up front of not having to make other moves to skirt under the luxury tax. So I live in the New York market, <clears throat> and things were very sort of painted completely differently when when there were rumors about him signing and the projections and like his mm-hmm. agent was putting out oh it's 150 million he's looking for and and then they're like and and the media in new york especially gets a little bit amped up as we know <laughs> so like they they were expecting something well over 100 and they were and so they were shocked uh when it was only mm-hmm. 90 like it didn't even hit and you know they go oh, it must be 490 no it's 690 and wow yeah they really must he really must want to be a yankee so like it was significantly under what the hype was was projecting even though you know those of us who sort of follow the the data and look at the numbers like yeah probably not he's 32 you're looking at the sort of the probably the decline years especially in the second half of this contract so you know and the yankees know this obviously they're no dummies so so you know, not only did they structure it so that it was a lower AV, but they weren't going over a certain number, and they basically just spread it out. Instead of 490 or 590, it's 690, and it lowered the AV, but they're still paying $90. I mean, you can, you can, you know, it. 
if you if you have a shorter contract, obviously you're going to have a higher AUV for a certain value because you have to deal with the contract risk of each each year you add on, right? Of a potential decline, potential being stuck with it kind of risk, if if you will. So they know this. So they're each year you sort of discount for that, and we base and we build that into our modeling as well. So you know I have. <clears throat> uh, based on sort of my preliminary numbers, I have fair value of around 94 for six years. So we're pretty close. Could have gotten a little bit more maybe, but I think that's pretty close. Uh, you know, especially when you sort of think about the, you know, the second half of that will be 35, 36, and 37. We'll probably have to move to first base, even though he's not a natural first base. It's sort of odd. I always sort of <laughs> thought that was a little weird like he's not really a second baseman he's not really a first baseman what yeah he, you know <laughs> he's obviously can hit and there's no question yeah. about that it's like i just don't know where he fits defensively so yeah. and that's going to get more and more of an issue as he gets older yeah yeah and then the the short-term fallout is also a bit of a question mark here uh because you saw the yankees in in discussions rumors with some of the top shortstops on the market as well uh, namely Trevor Story, bringing back Didi Gregorius, that type of thing, Andrelton Simmons. Um, and if they were to do that, the solution would be, okay, we'll sign the shortstop, we won't bring back LeMahieu, and we'll move Glaber Torres to second base. Now, it looks like they're either they're either locked into Glaber Torres as their shortstop, or if they add someone else, then Torres is kind of without a position, and maybe he becomes a trade piece, which is an interesting thing to consider. Because yeah. Torres is a pretty, we have him at 73 million in surplus value, which is very, very high, and it's because he's a 23-year-old middle infielder, 23-year-old shortstop, with very good prospect pedigree and very good offensive production in the major leagues to this point. Mm -hmm. Now, that number does go down by a notable amount if the team decides he's not a shortstop, he's a second baseman. He loses yes. that position bump that we give him for being a shortstop. And as we've seen, especially with these last couple off seasons, second base is a pretty, it's a much easier position to fill. There's plenty of second basemen out there all the time. Yeah. And so his defense has been trending in the wrong direction. He hasn't quite gotten it together yet. His offense wasn't great in 2020. And so he's, he's at 73, but that's kind of a high variance 73. And he's a very high variance player, so it would be interesting. I don't, I don't think they do. I think they're going to see what they have here. He's such a valuable asset that if they can mold him into an above average major league shortstop, or at least an average major league shortstop, if they can make him anything near that, he's an incredibly valuable asset to have. Yeah. But he's got... <clears throat> sorry. Yes. No. No. I was just going to say, but if they do opt to move him, or at least consider moving him, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there are teams that need shortstops, obviously. And this year in particular would have been the year to move him because who are you competing against? You know, Simeon, Gregorius, mm -hmm. uh, Simmons. None of those guys are superstars. In terms um, of long-term value, he's a world above those guys. Yeah. But then next year you can't move him because then you're dealing with uh, Lindor and Story and Correa and, mm -hmm. and, and Seager. And like that's a flooded shortstop market. So then now you're have to, having to wait two years at that point Sandra Bogarts might end up but there's not much else going on unless we'll see what these other guys signed for but um so maybe the plan is let's make him into a shortstop you know we'll hold him on onto him for two years at that point he'll have two years left of control and maybe we'll we'll deal with it then um but the uh it's a very good point because he hasn't established himself as a shortstop now who else comes to mind Yankees shortstop who people thought was good but was it really anybody else come to mind <laughs> 
think I they see made where it you're work. going. <laughs> so, so you're telling me they need to trade for Alec for uh, for who are we thinking here? Who's the equivalent here? Uh, is that if they if they had traded for Lindor and put him at third base? Seager. <laughs> See, rumors keep, like Seager, you know, but um, Dodgers not going to trade him. Seager, yeah. you know, <laughs> the Yankees, but but he, that type of guy who's like you could see him shifting to third, you know. Maybe an Arenado, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Although he's more of a natural third baseman, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, my point is, <laughs> the Yankees have a history of dealing with guys like this at short and making it work. Yes, definitely. Um, the last four trade proposals on our site involving Torres are each these kind of mega deals, two of them for Luis Castillo, two of them for Jack Flaherty. And I think that makes a lot of sense if they were to push this chip in now. The rotation has some needs. It's pretty thin, um, especially if they don't bring back Masahiro Tanaka. So maybe this is the best way for them to get an ace, especially if, if Trevor Bauer is going to continue to make a theatrical production out of his free agency and they don't want to screw around with that. If he would even join a rotation with Garrett Cole anyway. But that's that's far, far into speculation here. Yeah, but but to your point, you know, the Yankees do need to address the rotation now. now that they've got Little Mayhew squared away. I mean, it's basically Cole and what? <laughs> Jordan Montgomery after that, you know, so Yeah. Domingo Herman. Yeah. <laughs> so they got some holes to fill there and that's there's gonna be some action there coming soon, I'm sure. Yeah, and Flaherty and Castillo both fit pretty well there for a team that's try still trying to stay under the luxury tax, as we mentioned, because they're making very little these next couple of years as they're still under their initial team control years. Musgrove. Musgrove. <laughs> I could see it. I could see it. That would be that would be a, a Sunny Gray type acquisition. Mm -hmm. Not in the way, hopefully, that Sunny Gray tanked while he was with them, mm -hmm. but in that in that mode where he's maybe not necessarily an ace type, but couple tweaks he could get there and if not he's a solid number two number three i i like that i like that fit for them mm -hmm. all right we've speculated about the yankees for long enough we've met our yankees quota uh let's head on to the phillies <laughs> continuing to bolster their bullpen they signed archie bradley to a one-year six million dollar deal uh that's just around the area maybe a little bit more than he was projected to earn in arbitration when the reds cut him and poor Reds, man. They <laughs> they pushed all their chips in for 2020. They signed Mike Moustakis. They, there were a handful of other moves that I'm blanking on right now, but they pushed a lot of chips in for 2020. Castellanos. Castellanos, Akiyama, that is the other one. Yep, and yep. even before that, when they traded for Bauer, jumping the gun a little bit, thinking, mm -hmm. oh, if you want to be competitive. Correct. I mean, they really were building something there. Right. And so they pushed all their chips in. They pushed their budget past where it had ever really been before. And then 2020 happens. It's a season with no fans. They're a team that relies more on gate revenue than many mm -hmm. others. Yeah. And they are in a bit of a smaller, weirder market for this. <laughs> um, and they just took this hit. They kind of they had some struggles offensively, which was a bit surprising since they had just loaded up their offense. Struggles offensively and some struggles in the bullpen. They made a couple moves at the deadline, one of which was to acquire Bradley. Uh, didn't give up too much for him since he was just a... Uh, Kind of middle relief type, maybe a setup. Um, they give up Josh Van Meter and Stuart, Stuart Fairchild, both kind of quad A-ish. Maybe they turn into a bench or a platoon type mm -hmm. player. Um, so not too much to lose for him. But part of the benefit of picking up Bradley was that he had the second year of control. And now with them themselves so far over budget and so much revenue lost in 2020, the Reds have kind of turned to cost-cutting measures here. They're unlikely to bring back Trevor Bauer. 
they non-tendered Bradley. They uh, they're they're looking into trade offers for Sonny Gray and Luis Castillo. They traded, they traded Rysel Iglesias. Correct, Rysel Iglesias. It's it's sad to see for Reds fans. Um, they had a really fun team going in 2020. They might have been the most screwed by 2020 out of Definitely. any team. Yeah. Um, and now Bradley, looking at this on the other end, the Phillies, as we mentioned with their bullpen, they add Archie Bradley, and he's he's no superstar. He was looking like a pretty good reliever through the beginning of his career. Once he moved from the rotation to the bullpen, he was looking pretty impressive. Um, since then, he's petered off a little bit. He is more of that middle re- middle relief type. Maybe if you squint, he's a late innings arm. He's got some upside. He's got some velocity. He's a very good addition to that bullpen, no matter how you look at him. Yeah. I think they overpaid a little bit and based on our modeling. Uh, now, it's hard to model relievers exactly, but mm-hmm. we can get generally in the ballpark, and we have them at 4.9 fair value. They paid six for him. It's Dabrowski. He overpays for what well, you know, <laughs> in his career. That's what he does. And he needs bullpen help. So, like, okay, all right. He can afford it. Um, now, it's interesting to see, though, how much budget the Phillies really have yeah because they were some making some noise earlier before they hired Dabrowski that oh, maybe they have to cut costs too but then they hired Dabrowski and maybe they're pivoting a bit and they're like no oh, no we want to go for it so like make up your mind so um but I'm guessing here that he's talked them into it we talked about Dabrowski's big skill of like right being managed up right talk to the owner and convince him you know you know to, to spend a little bit so maybe that's what he's doing here and you know granted this is not a big overpay six million is not going to kill him uh, but it's fine it bolsters it bolsters their bullpen so um little by little they're getting that job done yeah it's so interesting and i it, it makes you wonder how much of this is and we'll never know but how much of this is dombrowski and how much of this was the owners just crying a little poorer than they were mm-hmm. in that in those initial reports or maybe misreporting or whatever happened there? We'll, we'll never really know. But to go from, man, we lost so much money last year. We're going to trade Zach Wheeler. Look out. We're shopping him. Mm-hmm. To go immediately from that to, just kidding, we're going to spend $5 million a year on Dave Dombrowski, steal mm-hmm. him away from the Nashville project, <laughs> and then we're going to trade for Jose Alvarado, we're going to sign Archie Bradley, we're still in talks with JT Realmuto, still in talks with Didi Gregorius. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it's, I don't know if you've ever seen such a heel turn in such a short yeah. amount of time, and it's it's a good thing. I want to see the Phillies win as just a baseball fan. I, I liked it when they pushed in and grabbed Gene Segura, grabbed Bryce Harper, grabbed Zach Wheeler. I like it. I like watching teams do that. And to see them, after doing that, be rewarded with a few 500 seasons is disappointing. (laughs) You want to see Bryce Harper in the playoffs. That's what you want if you're a baseball fan. Yeah, and this is a similar situation to the Angels where they've got, you know, the clock is ticking, right, with Mm -hmm. Mike Trout for the Angels where while he's in his prime, you better get some people around him to actually help him you know, build into a winner. Same could be said of Bryce Harper, who actually had a really good year last year and is still in his prime, but he's not going to be forever. So, like, all right, make make it make a decision. You want to build around Harper while you can. Now you've got the other problem of the Mets suddenly becoming a huge contender. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Marlins are coming up. The Braves were good and won the the uh, and at least that whole division is. And the uh, Nationals very won the World Series a year ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then there's the Nationals who haven't given up yet. Yeah. Know? So and they're making moves. So. 
everybody's clamoring for space over there. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's going to be interesting. And it seems like the Phillies, okay, we do want to play in that game too. So we'll right. see how they go. The NL East and the NL Central are both going to be dogfights for completely different reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the NL Central might not have a team over 500. Nobody and wants to NL, win that. <laughs> the NL East, if it were mathematically possible, they could have all five all over 500. Yeah, right. Wacky. Fun to watch, and the Phillies, it's fun. It's nice to see them trying to keep pace. And honestly, you take last year's team, if it which which implies re-signing Real Mudo, which is far, far from a sure thing. But you take last year's team and give it even a competent bullpen, and they're at least a wild card team, probably. I could see it. Squinting a little bit, but I could see yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now heading to the West Coast, the Giants, who have talked for about a week or two now about signing a left-handed starter. They had an all-right-handed rotation uh, lined up for next season, but they, they got their lefty. They signed Alex Wood to a one-year deal, $3 million, and up to $3 million more in performance bonuses. Um, Wood's been a long-time Dodger, seen some success there, uh, kind of bumping between the rotation and the bullpen, dealing with some injuries. I think it's a, it's a solid fit for a team like the Giants, this is a, he's a bit in, he's not quite in Rich Hill territory, but he's the Rich Hill type where he's always performed very well when he does pitch. And so if you're the Giants still working through this rebuild, if you click into that 80th, 90th percentile outcome for Wood and he pitches the first half of the season with a 280 ERA and he's healthy, that's a big trade chip at the deadline. Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> here's the thing. Like, Every year we say this about Alex Wood. Every year. Like, if only he could stay healthy, he's good. If only he could stay healthy, he's good. Every, we say this for the last three or four years. And every year it's the same story. He's never on the mound. <laughs> Maybe you get a couple starts from him and then he breaks down again. You know, like, oh, my God. <clears throat> you know, so everyone sees that there's something good there. Um, it's been there for a while. You just can't – the guy just can't stay on the base – predictor of future injury is previous injury right and so so the market keeps like adjusting that and it's slightly skewed to like okay all right you know we really want to believe in him but so this he got four million i think last year and the year before that he got more like he keeps coming down like as the industry sort of figures him out like right you're not going to get much from him so we're going to keep you know giving you less and less money because we're not going to get much from you it's he's, he's reached down to the three million level um from a modeling standpoint it's i find him particularly challenging because he's hard to like how do you quantify all those injuries and like mm -hmm. maybe you could look at the innings pitched and sort of make your best guess and and but he's a case where like clearly that is the dominant theme he just cannot stay healthy so you know you just spend a little money on him and hope you get something right and it's like you say it's a little money it's three million dollars i mean yeah, right it's 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 there's no way they can lose out on this at all <laughs> yeah they've got the budget for it sure right not? now the one thing that I found weird about this, and maybe this is outside the scope of this particular podcast, but I thought it was so bizarre that an organization led by Farhan Zaidi and analytically forward, forward thinking, that they locked themselves into this mindset of, according to reports at least, of we have all righties in our rotation, we need a lefty. I thought that was... I, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that was just kind of an older times baseball old grumpy yeah. manager says Tony oh, Larusa would do in there that. To mix. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I guess Tony Larusa is coming back in 2021, yes. so we got to bring back his <laughs> that type of thinking too. But I I, yeah. I I thought that was strange. It's a good point. Um, you know, 
I think every team thinks about le lefty-righty distribution, right? Certainly in their lineups. I think that's still a truism, you know, and certainly in their bullpens. But you right. make a good point. Like, I'm not sure it's a thing with starters. Like, I hadn't really noticed it being a pattern either. Not, not, nothing that particularly strong, unless you think about it in terms of if you get to the playoffs and everybody uses starters as bullpen guys in the playoffs right. and you need them there. Maybe I could see that, but I, I kind of agree with you otherwise. But the 2021 Giants probably don't have that consideration yeah. <laughs> at the front of their thinking. I, I think the only, my only explanation for it, well, two explanations. One is just that that's what they kind of tell the media when it's really just like, oh, we, we like a couple of the lefties that are out there. Yeah. Second idea is that Wood in particular is, if there's a guy like Wood, you want him to be a lefty. <laughs> a guy like this who's going to have some injury issues who might bounce between the rotation and the bullpen. Maybe it's nicer to have him as a lefty since you can always use an extra effective lefty in the bullpen, whereas yeah. a righty might not might not cut it, might not be able to yeah. find a place there, and maybe you have to cut them all together. Um, and I, I say that not necessarily with a full understanding of the Giants' bullpen depth chart because it's a lot of guys whose names I've probably <laughs> heard once or twice before. Uh, so I don't, maybe they have five lefties down there ready to go and I'm, I'm completely <clears> off base, but that's, that's the only consideration I can. I no, can I mean, of. I think that's a good point. I mean, I, frankly, I don't know why he hasn't been moved to the bullpen. You know, clearly, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard. He has no durability. So, you know, it's hard to see him, you know, holding up over, over the course of a year as a starter. So maybe that was in the back of their minds. I think it's a valid point. Yeah. He's he's got the makings of a Drew Pomeranz, maybe. Yeah. Just needs um, a team to deploy him like that. Yeah, just checking um, roster resource. They've got three lefties in their bullpen right now, so they don't really need one. Mm -hmm. yeah, say, but, but they're now, not who, really who that good either. Who are those three lefties? <laughs> yeah, I believe one of them is Wandy Peralta, right? Yeah, and Sam Selman and mm -hmm. Harlan Garcia. All of those Harleen. are sort of Ed Harleen. All of yeah. those are sort of fringy edge cases. So. Yeah. And I believe Selman, well, you have the page open. I'm sure he has options left. So if there is some sort of situation where yeah. Wood comes back and you can't build up the innings to start him and you want to place him in the bullpen, you can option Selman and stick him there. I don't know. That's right. We're, the only we're analyzing yeah. this a little too far. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To keep it in the bullpen here. Astro signed Pedro Baez. Do you often forget Pedro Baez exists? Because I, I often forget Pedro Baez exists. The Dodgers <laughs> forgot he existed. They're like, oh, he's on our team. We forgot to add him to the playoff roster. <laughs> but I forget he exists, but when I do, he's one of the most fascinating players in baseball to me. So I don't know if you're aware. I don't know if listeners are aware. I've I've been a huge Fernando Rodney fan. Yeah, I know. I, I think he's funny. <laughs> I think he's ridiculous. I it, it's baseball is more fun with Fernando in it, and maybe you don't think that if he's pitching the ninth for your team, but if you're anyone else, I'm sure you do. Um, and uh, a couple years ago, I remember talking with my roommate just one night, just thinking, who's the next Fernando Rodney? Because he's getting up there in age. He's going to retire soon. And we settled on Pedro Baez <laughs> because he's just so. If he's on your team, you hate him, even though he's productive. He was very productive for his Dodgers career, <clears throat> but he yeah. quickly lost favor with the fan base, and I think that's twofold. One, he didn't necessarily, when you look at his body of work in the playoffs, it's not horrible. He just had a couple key bad outings 
that really lost them, that either lost them a series, lost them a pivotal game, something along that. And that's the quickest way to lose favor with fans. And the second quickest way is by being the slowest pitcher on the planet. <laughs> that <laughs> we so, know. Yeah. And so that's Dodgers fans. I, I can't speak for all of them, but I think on the vast majority of them, not big Pedro Baez fans. I think they were they were fine to see him gone. But when you just look at the numbers, he's a cromulent reliever. He's a valuable reliever. I can see why the Astros signed him. I can as well, but he's he's a difficult one to project because on the one hand, you think, oh, he's been consistently good. But then you look at his F4 numbers, and they're not. There's like a 0.1 year. There's a, zero point, there's a 1.3 year. There's a 0.1 again. And then like Steamer's got him at minus 0.2 going on. But then you look at the win probability. Again, he's all over the place. He's got a 2019, he's 2.02. That's fantastic. <clears throat> but then he's got some zeros and a negative one before that. So like, what? What, what are you getting here? So, so like, are, you he seeing the Fernando, <laughs> are you seeing the Fernando Rodney comparison of consistently inconsistent? Exactly. Like, throw your arms up and <laughs> we'll get something from him. We don't know what it's going to look like. He, he is quite a quandary, I'm, I have to tell yeah. you. Then they paid, so here's the other thing. I know the Astros need bullpen help, but what do they pay him? Six million a year? Now, if in a pandemic, I'm, I'm not sure I would pay that for him because – for, for that money, I want certainty. I mean, that's mm-hmm. fair-ish to high-ish on a bullpen guy, a middle reliever. You know, if I'm paying that, I want certainty. And I'm not sure I'm getting certainty with bias. I'm not sure if he's the good bias or the bad bias in any given year. So, uh, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, so the breakdown there is 500,000 signing bonus, 4.5 mil in 2021, 5.5 in 2022, and then a $2 buyout. Yeah, so... Option. Okay, all right. It's not terrible, but it's a little bit more than I would have thought for him. Mm-hmm. And it, it always raises your eyebrows when you see a team like the Astros signing really any pitcher. You get a little excited and say, is there something we're missing here? Yeah. I don't I don't necessarily think there is, but I want I, – God, I'm, I'm just looking at his Fangraphs page. This is silly. <laughs> he, he's always been above, above replacement level every year of his career, but it goes .1 war. Yep. One, 0.3, 0.1, yeah. 0.8, 1.3, 0.1. It just bounces yeah. up and down. Exactly, that's my point. And then you look, and then you look <clears> at it next to the ERA numbers, where it's 2.6, 3.3, 3.0, 2.9, 2.8, 3.1, 3.1. It's like these ERAs are very, but very yeah. consistent. <clears throat> yes. And right next to that, a nice new feature, relatively new feature from Fangraphs, is exit velocity, also very consistent. Yes. But and. and he had the second worst FIP of his career last year, 4.43. His strikeouts way down, walks way up. Um, it's hard with relievers. It's very difficult after 2020 to, to try and figure out how much weight to put into 2020. Yeah. So maybe the Astros are just willing to say, hey, we're going to not necessarily throw that out, but we're going <clears> to <throat> see what we can do here. And as you mentioned, they're a team that really needed bullpen help. They had, I believe in the playoffs there, they had Ryan Presley, and then a whole bunch of rookies. <laughs> I don't think they had another veteran reliever in the playoffs. Yeah, and one pattern I've noticed in terms of valuation is ex-WOBA is a really important stat. It correlates very highly with reliever value. And he's been um, consistently in the twos. So 271 last year, mm-hmm. 251 the year before that. And I haven't gone back further than that. But <clears throat> but it just, you know, I think that's the, that's the key to the story here. I think that's because that's, that's kind of knows 
that tells you what what they're getting is thirteen percent above average, um, and that's why they're paying the money for them. Mm-hmm. So that, that's definitely of all the relievers that are going to sign for a deal in this range, he's the one I'm most interested to watch the next two seasons. I I want to see. I'm <clears> really <throat> invested in how this deal works out. I'm glad you have the patience for that, John. <laughs> but to your point about Fernando Rodney, he signed my he signed his autograph on my kids' baseball hats when we went to a game once, and I was very very thankful for him. He's a nice guy. He doesn't he's have the greatest. Very nice he's a very nice guy. Nice guy. <laughs> By all reports, he's a fun, happy, nice yeah. guy. Great clubhouse presence. Just a pain in yeah. the ass to watch pitch. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> all right. Um, Speaking of potentially nice guys, but I don't, I'm not sure about this one. I always thought he was a nice guy. Um, <laughs> Angel signed Kurt Suzuki today. Uh, one year, one and a half million dollar deal. Uh, 37 year old catcher. Usually you don't see those kinds of guys stick around too long, especially if they're not necessarily incredible defenders back there, glove first type guys like Jeff Mathis. Uh, Suzuki's yeah. been a little bit hit or miss with the glove yeah. last for his career, really. Um, but he's. Develop, he's had kind of an offensive resurgence the last handful of years. Um, it's it's just a one-year, one-and-a-half million-dollar deal, so it's it's probably more of a backup role to Max Stassi anyway, and kind of depending on how Max Stassi's uh, recovery from injury goes. I believe I believe it was a shoulder injury that he suffered <coughs> um, and is still right. rehabbing from. Yeah, and so and he had a bit of a breakout in 2020, so he was probably he's projected to be their starting catcher. It's just um, whether he's ready for opening day or not. And Suzuki's a fine backup there. Um, yeah. He was slightly above average bat the last few years after his real breakout 2017 with the Braves. Um, gloves, as I mentioned, kind of middle of the road. Um, what is, <coughs> not not much yeah. to say here. <laughs> no, well, I so aging curves for catchers are not pretty right and so mm-hmm. now he's 37 so he's at the end of his rope basically and it's poetic because he's a cal state fullerton guy so right in orange county and so that's like his home team i can see this is kind of his farewell year back at home um fair value on him is one million given his age and everything else and playing time is probably going to be reduced so they're paying 1.5 so it's pretty close to rounding error um what what i think is interesting though is are they done with their catcher? Are they going with Stasi as the one and Suzuki as the two, which means they're not in the market for Contreras, say? You know, we've had a lot of trade proposals on our site about Contreras going to the mm-hmm. Angels. So does that take them out? And maybe the GM, Perry Manassian, is thinking, okay, not my highest priority. I'm going to focus on my pitching staff. That's where I need to, to put the bucks. So, if, if that's the case, <clears throat> I think yeah. that's the right call. I yeah. think... Because you look at the market, they, they were involved in James McCann, and I think that's a reasonable target for them, given mm-hmm. where his price range ended up being. Um, and then missing out on him, you'd say, okay, maybe they should go for Real Mudo. But they're up against a budget, up against the tax, and they have an entire rotation to put together, really. It, it, optimistically, they still need to fill two or three spots. Yeah, I mean, and, you don't know if Otani's going to be part of the rotation or not. I'm, yeah. I'm not thinking he will be, so you've got to... You can't least, count yeah. on that. Yeah. And Bauer's the natural fit, but again, who knows how much... Who knows what his contract's going to look like, what he's going to prioritize. He's he's the biggest question mark Yeah. free agent we've seen in a long time because he's kind of... <laughs> I don't know if hinted at is the right word or threatened, <laughs> but to... Uh, to sign a shorter te- term deal, perhaps even one year, to try and maximize his value, kind of bet on himself year over year. 
Yeah, they've walked that back quite a bit. They're just going to take whatever money they can get. And I think a lot of teams are afraid of his personality, frankly, Mm -hmm. as a match. And, you know, he wants top of the market dollars, obviously. He wants Garrett Cole money. But I don't Mm -hmm. think he's going to get it because I think there's kind of a clubhouse fit issue with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, he's a Southern California guy, so the Angels seem like a perfect match from a, a variety of standpoints. Um, and but it's just a question of like you know how much you want to pay him. It's it's it, I think there's a lot of high variance with him for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. He hasn't been the most consistent. He's obviously coming off a great year, but it was also a short year. He wasn't he wasn't very good when the when the Reds traded for him in the second half of 2019. He kind of fell apart. Like what are you really getting from a pitching standpoint from him? And then what are you getting from a personality clubhouse standpoint from him mm-hmm. as well? I think certain teams may have some reservations about, this, especially if he wants a ton of money. So. Yeah, <laughs> he's a hard fit. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I try to limit the amount of time I spend every day putting myself into Trevor Bauer's mindset. I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's generally unhealthy. Yeah. But if you were to put yourself in Trevor Bauer's shoes, do you really want to join the team with Mike Trout? Given his, I mean, he's laid out what he really wants in his free agent destination. He's talked a lot about how he wants it to be a two-way relationship between he the team helps him grow and he helps people on the team grow and they're receptive of his kind of newer pitching ideas and development ideas and i think the angels could be rep recipient what word am i looking for here (laughs) uh the the angels could be agreeable to that Mm -hmm. but you know trevor trevor bauer has an ego does he want to go on the team with the best player in baseball you you wonder about that like mike trout also has i think some subtle leadership qualities like mm-hmm. he's the man on that team obviously like if he doesn't like what you're saying he'll give you a look right i, mm-hmm. I i'm i'm speculating here a bit but i that's the impression <laughs> i get because everyone yeah. looks up to him so much you know it's his team so i think you're onto something there <clears throat> yeah so I, I don't know how we just turned a one-year Kurt Suzuki signing into <laughs> Trevor Bauer's <laughs> internal monologue debate. But what we were getting at there was the Wilson Contreras question yes. of whether they're in the market for a guy like that. And I think, I think given what we just discussed, how Bauer's not really an option, Real Muto's probably not an option, and they do have limited trade capital. They have a couple outfielders that they could play with and a couple lower minors guys, but they're not, they don't want to trade Nadell. They don't want to push all their chips in. So given what they have, I think it's maybe more realistic that they use those trade chips on starting pitching. Yeah. I maybe a Musgrove. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, they've got Haney, Bundy, and Canning. I mean, there's not really an ace there. There's just like a twos and maybe three. And then you, then it, then there's a drop-off, right? And maybe right. Otani pitches, it doesn't. Then you've got like depth guys like Sandoval and Berea. So like mm-hmm. they need, I think they need, a top of the order guy but the, mm-hmm. other than bauer like where is it there's not really any unless you're trading for castillo but he's going to be so expensive we wipe out their farm to your point i uh, it's hard to see that one you know so mm-hmm. I, that's the challenge <clears throat> yeah I suppose maybe you just is... go with a musgrove and, and you don't need a quote-unquote ace I don't right know. <laughs> i suppose this is the best time to bring this up um we talk about musgrove a lot and i think we both agree that he's a very underrated pitcher, very valuable pitcher, and mm-hmm. the values obviously agree. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain quickly why? Because I think we've gotten a lot of questions about that on Twitter, especially about why why we think <clears> so highly sure. of Musgrove given the ERA. Sure. Um, so if you look at, um, I'm just going to pull up Musgrove's um, Fangraphs page, and so we can talk real numbers here. <clears throat> so 
I think this is a perception versus reality issue. When when he first came up, he was like, yeah. But then he had like just sort of replacement level a couple of years, 2017, you know. But then he got better. In 2018, he was a 2.2 F4 pitcher. And then um, really come, came along 2019. He put up 3.3 F4, um, you know, FIP under four. Um, and then the abbreviated 2020, he was on pace for pretty close to a three war. Steamer projects him for three war. Like you don't think of him as a three war pitcher, but that's what the numbers are saying consistently. 2019, 20, and 21, he's a three war pitcher. Furthermore, he's in his prime. He's only 28, I think. Uh, yeah, 28. So you're getting still the prime years from him. But the big difference, I mean, our, our formula is like performance versus sal minus salary equals surplus. There's a ton of surplus here because he's got two years of control. He just uh, agreed to an arbitration deal of 4.4 million. Um, so he's, you know, over those two years, he's going to put up probably six or maybe even seven war for, you know, 11 or $12 million, you know, so that's that's where the surplus is and, and that's where the value is. And then you could argue that there's even more upside there um, because he's if you take him out of Pittsburgh and put him on a winning team, he might rise up even more. So, right. So, you know, base cases, he's got we've got him at 36 in terms of median and we're not adding any sort of, you know, sort of front end starter sort of premium to that or anything. That's just base level is what it is. He's got 36 million in surplus. And I think he'll go for that. Yeah, he's the perfect type of player where his value is so high because arbitration is broken. Yeah. Because because he has the ugly ERAs, because he had not even that ugly, but they're all up until this last season all over four. Because he has the ugly win loss record, because he has a bit of a lower innings pitch total for every season except for twenty nineteen, because of that, arbitration doesn't value him very highly. And so it suppresses his salary, and even if he were to have a breakout twenty twenty one, his salary increase for twenty for the next arbitration raise is still building off of that lower that's base right. that's right so it, he might get a, the raise that he deserves but he won't get the full salary that he would have if 2020 was the same caliber if that makes sense so right. he, his his salaries are suppressed in addition and we'll get to a little bit more of this later uh talk some more andrew benintendi but one good point that was raised on twitter that isn't the full picture and i think they were they were thinking it was the full picture but it's at least a factor here uh, because Chris, T Chris Cotillo of Mass Live kind of speculated out loud on Twitter that Benintendi could be traded for a Joe Musgrove type. And we responded saying, not really, <laughs> not no. even close, really. We have Musgrove up in the 30s. We have Benintendi at about five or six yeah. um, in trade value. <clears throat> and we had a reply that said, it's because, you know, it's easier to find league average innings from an outfielder than it is from a starting pitcher which isn't the entirety of the picture but it is a factor it's that's why you see the mike leak types and not to suggest that musgrove is a mike leak type he's better than that mm -hmm. but that's why you see the mike leak types hang around for so long continue to get paid whereas those kind of fringy outfielder types not to say and again not to say that ben Attendee is fringy but to, he's been a lot closer to league average the last couple of years those guys don't last as long, don't hang around as long, don't get paid. So, <clears throat> um, you're making a great point. So there was an article in The Athletic yesterday um, that talked, it, uh, nominally it talked about um, the importance of 
of um, Raphael Devers and what he agrees to now, because that's going to, to your point, set him up for the next two years after that, because arbitration is really, it's, um, you know, whatever you make in that first year, you get a raise on that from the second and third year. So that first year is the most important one. And if it's too low, the second and third years are going to be low. And I wanted to talk about this because we just had some arbitration updates today. And if they came in lower, especially for first year guys, it changed their whole salary profile. And so I've been updating some numbers as decided as a result, like guys like uh, Mondesi and Hoskins came in lower than we thought they would. And so now their surplus has gone up accordingly. So <clears throat> with, um, so that's point number one. So, because of the traditional, to your point, back of the baseball card sort of way that, you know, the old fashioned, so arbitration was started in the seventies, in the seventies, where for pitchers, it was one loss record in ERA. And, you know, if you're Musgrove and you were one in five last year, you know, that's not gonna, yeah. you know, um, and he was an 11 and 12 in 2019, even though, you know, and he had a 4.44 year away. So that's why he started off in his first arbitration year with a very low number, even though all the other sort of advanced analytics that we follow and that front offices follow tell a completely different story. He's a much better pitcher than that. So there's complete disconnect. He's a, he's a card carrying example of it, of the disconnect between what you should be making in arbitration, what you're actually making. And because of that differential, the market sees him much more valuable than what he really is getting paid for. And that's what creates the, sur creates the surplus. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I think I think this is a good time, as good a time as any, to kind of transition into some of that arbitration talk. Musgrove is yeah. a good jumping off point there. Yeah. Um, we, I only have a couple points to make here. Um, it's been a little bit hectic today. We started recording a few minutes after the deadline and a few minutes after. Um, there, so there's still some arbitration deals rolling in with the exact numbers and everything. So MLB trade rumors and uh, Matt Swartz, correct? Yep. That's his name. Uh, so. This year, as we've discussed, the arbitration estimates are much difficult, much more difficult mm -hmm. to really judge exactly what the market's going to look like and how teams are going to treat players. Um, so MLB Trade Rumors and Matt Swartz, their solution to this is to come up with three numbers for each player. So they came up with the first number, which applies their model directly and just says, we're just going to plug in the stats and see what number comes out. And that's the dollar number that we'll use. Method number two extrapolated their 2020 sats out to 162 game value. So if they hit 10 homers in the 60 games, it would credit them with hitting 28 20, or whatever, yeah, the, exactly. whatever that number comes out to. Um, and then method three is using raises and so if, if they've already gone through arbitration once um it gives them just a, a prorated fraction of the raise that they would normally get in 162 season, game season so that one's a little bit more complicated yeah essentially what i saw and maybe you have i'm just this is very uh almost anecdotal it's just what i saw on my twitter feed so maybe you have a bit more information here from what I saw, it seemed like, for the most part, numbers were falling between the numbers for method one and method two. That's exactly what I was going to say. They're splitting the difference. A, a lot. I, I noticed some were a little closer to method two, I think. Yeah. So, so erring on that side, where you, they probably placed more value into 2020 than you would just... Let's say a player in 2019 was injured for 100 games, so they only played 60 games. Well, teams aren't exactly considering 2020 like that. They're putting a little bit more weight into it since it was a full season, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, so they are leaning a bit more that way. And so I think then 
what becomes interesting for the players that don't fall into that bucket, that, that kind of go on either side of that range. Um, the one that I noticed that was really notable was Matt Chapman. Mm, yeah. So they had, he's first year ARP guy, like you were talking about with Devers. And they had him estimated for either 2.9 million or 4.3 million. And he ended up getting 6.49. Yeah, you look that at was that, an exception. Yeah, you look at that, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's only $2.2 million. But that escalates right. quickly over his three years of arbitration. And I think that makes it significantly more likely that by year three of arbitration, he's in a Chris Bryant situation. Yeah. Where he's making 15, 17, 18 million on that deal. And the A's just have no choice but to trade him and probably not get all that much for him because he's run out of surplus. Yeah, exactly. He's totally it totally changed his, his salary profile. And keep in mind his agents, you know who his agent is, right? Right. <laughs> Mr. Morris. I have a feeling he had something to do with that. Yes. <clears throat> um, so, uh, yeah. So all of that is well said, and I agree with it. So to your first point, it seems to be on looking at the eye, eye test. It's coming in between method one and method two. In other words, taking 2020 at face value versus you know transposing them to what they would have been if it was a full season. Now, when we first set up the off-season numbers, and this is my decision, I went with the method two because I was thinking, okay, <clears throat> the players just got you know through no fault of their own, they got underpaid in 2020. They're not going to want to get underpaid again in 2021, especially when it's a precedent setter. So they're going to want to argue for that middle number. Like, it's not our fault we had a pandemic. We should still be getting paid what we're worth. So, And also because if you're going to trade for somebody, especially before this happened, you want to sort of count your risks and say, well, he actually might get that higher number. And so you're going to want to discount for that. So we felt like, I felt like that was the logical sort of approach to take. And so what we're doing now is updating the site saying, okay, this one's just a little bit, it's a hair under that somewhere between option one, method one, method two. So a lot of guys were being adjusted down a little bit in terms of their salary, which is going to bump their, up, up their service number, surplus number just a little bit. And these are fairly minor changes. I mean, most of them are, I'm like Musgrove, we we're just talking about, came in right at, and I think we had him at 4.4, he came in at 4.45. I mean, that's ridiculously you know, close. So Hater was right where we thought he would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of guys though I noticed, like um, uh, Adalberto Mondesi came in really low, like in the twos, and I thought he would be like four. Hoskins, uh, Reese Hoskins of Philly, of the Philadelphia the Phillies came in a little bit low too. And so both those guys are going to have higher surplus numbers as a result of that because it changes their whole profile. Um, Dominic Smith was another one. Um, we got a lot of questions. Why isn't Dominic Smith higher? Because when we chose option two, method two. Um, it kind of bumped up his projected salary. Now that he's chosen a lower number, okay, now his salary, this is his first year of arbitration, I believe, as well. And so then his whole salary number changes. So now he's gone from 17-something surplus into the low 20s, So, which probably will please a lot of Mets fans. So, um, so good for the Mets, not as good for Dominic Smith. I think some of these guys are also sort of splitting the difference because they don't want to go to arbitration because it's such a funky year. They're thinking, yeah. uh, what if I don't get paid? What if it's just, you know, so better to split the difference than to risk that. I think mm-hmm. that's that's why you saw a flood of these things going on today. Yeah, definitely. Um, one other that stuck, stuck out to me, and not necessarily because he deviated from his projections, but just because I guess it was something I hadn't realized. Cody Bellinger. Um, so he mm. was projected... His three projections were 11.5, 15.9, and 13.1. So 15.9 was the number we used for method two. He yeah. ended up getting 16.1. Yeah. So that's that's pretty close. Only 200,000 difference. But the, 
thing is that he's a super two, mm-hmm. and that was year two of arbitration for him. Mm-hmm. So two hundred thousand dollars, especially when you're up in that territory, it can kind of it can multiply over these next two years. Right. Like we were kind of saying, you're building on that base. So that that increase from sixteen point one to or fifteen point nine to sixteen point one might end up making him a few million <laughs> in the long run extra. Yeah. And the second point there is that. God, he looks like he's poised to set arbitration records. I mean, oh. there's it's very like I don't know, I don't want to say very likely. There's a decent chance that the Dodgers send sign him to a mega deal and he and Betts are just there forever. I think that's a very realistic possibility. But if they don't, if they do go year to year with him or even if they sign him to that extension once he gets to that last year of arbitration, the way it's looking, that last year could be huge. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually plugging that in as we speak. So we had 15.9. It's slightly different than 16.1. But look, the historically, the pattern is in a normal sort of three-year window, you get 25% of market value. Now, that's debatable because of the way they calculate that. But 25, then 40% of market value, then 60. So, But we also said that it, they were raises. So that first year, if you're getting 25% of your market value, what you're doing is in the second year, and this is how we're calculating it, saying, okay, 40 divided by 25, whatever that number is, you know, and then the third year, you're basically getting a 50% raise. So with him, <clears throat> he's already in the second year, to your point, making 16 million. If we followed that a similar pattern in his third year, if he gets a 50% raise, he'd be at 24 million for 2022, which is already up there. And then, oh, by the way, he's still got another year of arbitration <laughs> after that. And even if you say, no, there's no way you get a 50% raise on that. Let's say he gets a 33% raise. That's 32.1 million. Right. That would blow out the, the record number of Mookie bets, right? So right. Wasn't bets at 20? <clears throat> at 20 flat? Or did I? Or was that the year before? Was that? 27, was, I think, right? 27. Okay, 20 yeah. was the year before for him. Yeah. Jeez. So, <laughs> yeah, and even but he's so good and so yes. young. He hasn't even hit his prime yet. He's already a five-plus war player. He's, he's still got a plenty of surplus even making that much money right mm-hmm. so so then you think my god what do you what would he get you know if he were a free agent i mean that would be record-breaking that'd be mike trout territory you know so right <laughs> very interesting case and that's <clears throat> after kind of an iffy 2020 season imagine if he was good in 2020 right imagine if he had another one of those mvp type years we'd be whew, i don't even know <laughs> um so yeah, yeah. those are that's that's the majority of what stood out to me. I don't know if you have other other points you want to bring up. No, that's about it. I mean, so the last point is if you are a regular user of our site and you see a few changes here and there to the mm-hmm. values, that's why. Because we're plugging in the real numbers that we're seeing here. We had estimates before, and now we have the real ones. And in some cases, like with first-year ARB players, it can change their profile. So you'll see that with Dominic Smith, for example. He'll, his surplus went up. So if anybody has any questions of that, you can always ask us, but, but that's what's going on there. We got a few right. more to do. I started doing some this afternoon. I'm way behind, so I'll get to them, you know, over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think we have we have a handful of more news bits to get to. Uh, mostly just some rumors. We'll try to go through this a little quickly. We're already almost at an hour and a half here, and then we have a couple more. We have the trade of the week. We got an article to discuss. So uh, let's just roll through these a little quicker. Yeah. Um, just something I wanted to mention at least is. I'm sure you all have heard Theo Epstein has been named MLB's consultant to the commissioner's office, which I think if he was going to be in the sport this year, it's it's the role he would go to. He's going to be working with Major League Baseball to make it more marketable, to improve the game. Um, 
it, it's a dream. It's a, it's a perfect role for a guy like him. who's He's done everything he could really do on the team side as far as what he did with the Red Sox, what he did with the Cubs. The natural next step is how can I make the entire game better? Yeah. And I, I like that role for him a lot. I don't know if he's on track to be the next commissioner. I think a lot of people want that. I don't, I don't, I won't pretend to know exactly what that process looks like. Um, but it's nice to see him in a higher <clears throat> up position helping improve the game. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, look, the commissioner's job is, is herding cats of 30 different rich billionaire guys, right? The billionaire owners, you report to them, you work for them. And so that's a diplomatic role to some extent. Like the, it, it's been criticized, and I think fairly, of Manfred that he spends more time sort of massaging egos of billionaires than he does actually looking after the game. So I welcome this move because I think Theo's, in, you know, he's got, you know, from what I've seen, the right ideas. And I think we do need more sort of act- action in the game, faster pace. I mean, if you know, my kid's in Little League, and if you go you know, watch a Little League game and they're still second, they're still in third, there's all this action going on. It's a lot of fun mm-hmm. to watch, right, compared to sort of a slower major league game. Obviously, the skill set is different and everything, but but you need a little bit more action, I think, and, you know, especially to get the younger crowd. And I, I, yeah. I think he's going he's gonna to look at ways to do that. If there's anyone in the league that I trust right now smart enough to – pull the right strings there, make the right moves that won't have drastic consequences for the rest of the game, I think it's him. So I I like that role for him. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tomoyuki Sagano agreed to a four-year, $40 million deal back with the Yomiuri Giants. He's staying in Japan in the Nippon Professional Baseball League. Um, That contract does have three opt-out chances, so he's going to try again on the market the next few years if he would like. Um, but this one was a surprise to some folks. Um, he was seen as probably the second best pitcher available after Bauer, and it looked like a market just didn't create itself for him. And I, I think that's a bit disappointing. I think we all wanted to watch Sugano pitch, see what he had. Um, so yeah, yeah, what do you what do you think? I think it's a, a question of certainty versus uncertainty. Uh, like you don't want to pay a lot of money for a guy who you. There's always a you know there's hits and misses when when they're coming from Asia. You know, like some guys do it well, some guys don't. And I I'm not an expert enough in like the, what what the trick is to identify which ones are going to, which ones aren't. Um, but they just haven't faced this level of competition before. Some people compare it to like the AAA versus Major League Baseball. So it's hard. You want to sort of underpay, if you will, just to give yourself a little wiggle room just in case it doesn't pan out. And yeah. if he's looking for like a four-year deal with a lot of money, it's hard to really sink that cost, especially in this budget challenge climate, if you don't have a sense of certainty that he's really going to deliver. And I think that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, my personal theory, and this probably doesn't apply to Sagano because he's at the top of that market. My personal theory entering this offseason was that we would see a lot more action and transactions between MLB teams and the Nippon Professional Baseball League, the KBO, other overseas teams. My theory being that there's going to be a lot of teams who look at like kind of the minor league free agent type market and say, a lot of these guys that we might have wanted for depth in another year, they just didn't play last year. We don't know what to expect from them. And mm-hmm. then they look over at the NPB or the KBO, and those guys did play a full season. And so they say, hey, we'll bring you over on maybe a minor league deal or maybe one of those two-way deals or something like that. And we trust your <laughs> – we know you're in shape. We know what to expect from you. On the flip side of that, there's maybe a lot of those minor league free agent types um, – 
from MLB that say, we just didn't have a minor league season at all. Who knows what the minor league season is going to look like? I'm going to go sign overseas because I know I can play baseball there. Yeah. So I, I kind of theorized before the offseason that we'd see more activity like that. I feel like we have. I'd be yeah. very interested to see a study with, that actually breaks down the numbers. But just by my gut, by my what I've seen on, <laughs> on Twitter and on transactions and all that, it seems like we've had more activity. Uh, Sugano, notwithstanding. Yeah, fair point. Okay, next bit. The Padres have been discussing an extension with Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, seems this is another one of those situations where the news breaks from from a uh, Latin American source saying the deal is done, almost agreed to. It's this this many years and this kind of a dollar amount. And then it kind of reaches stateside, and it's a lot of these reporters walking it back a little bit and saying, yes, they're in talks, but we're not there yet. And I don't know if that's kind of a lost in translation kind of thing. It seems like it happens every now and then. Mm. Um, but it is it does seem like that they are making significant progress here. Uh, Preller visited Tatis in the Dominican Republic a couple weeks ago. And so I'm very interested to see what this looks like. Um, Ken Rosenthal did a great piece on how how that might work out how it might look um a lot of people have written i think kylie mcdaniel also wrote one for espn uh, espn insider but basically he's in a weird spot right now with how old he is because you say well if he takes that 10 or 11 year deal which has kind of been the norm for those big name free agent uh, the big name superstars signing extensions or signing free agent deals for tatis because he's so young it would put him back on the market at his age 32, 33 season. And that's a weird spot to hit the free agent market. So you think, okay, so you either got to go shorter, yeah. which makes less sense for the Padres, or longer, which we've just never really seen before. Yeah. So I'm I'm very interested to see how this turns out. Yeah, he's 21, and he's going to be 22 this year. So obviously, oh my God, you've got age on your side, and there's so much great stuff to come from him, I'm sure. Um, this is similar to the Acuna uh, extension. I mean, that's what the Padres want. They want to mm-hmm. lock him up for 10 years or whatever, you know, at a really ch- under market rate because they know they, he hasn't even hit his prime yet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, I mean, his field value, I'm just looking at it, is like 51, 58, 60, 62 as he gets into his prime years, you know? I mean, that's ridiculous. And, and if you, but, but he's still making the league minimum, right? He hasn't even hit Arv yet, right? So from his perspective, you know, he, he'll get paid sooner if he accepts a deal. And obviously you'd have, you know, cost certainty for him. from his perspective, cost certainty from the Padres' perspective. They'd split the difference and go under market and everybody wins. That's what they're looking for, right? That's what these deals mm-hmm. are all about. And certainly from an extension standpoint, you know, it's much better to extend a guy who's 22 than a guy who's 32, right? So um, you're, you're just, you know, you're buying out his prime years. And that's – so – um, I think it makes sense, you know, to get whatever you can from the Padres' point of view. I think it makes sense from if I'm Tatis's agent saying, you know, to your point, let's either go 13 or go set six or seven because I don't want the middle ground of 10, you know. Yeah. Um, so if you go six or seven, you will probably get a higher AAV. If you go 13, they're going to spread that out and flatten it out because you've got to have a lot. That's that's a big bucket of money, so you're going to yeah. you're going to want a lower AAV and spread out the risk. Yeah, and. I, I hope we don't see another situation here like we did with Ronald Acuna, where I think, I know industry consensus when he signed that deal was, yikes. <laughs> he yeah, that, more money Albies that. too. Yeah, yeah. way under. And, yeah. and part of the speculation there for Acuna was that he's 
never been shown this much money before. He wasn't a first round draft pick domestically. Right. He didn't see that five, six, seven million dollar signing bonus that he might have. Instead, he signed internationally and wasn't even that big of an international prospect at the time. He signed for a hundred thousand dollars. Well, just looked it up. Fernando Tatis Jr. signed with the White Sox for four hundred thousand dollars. And I think I think there's a chance you can see a different case here that maybe fights that particular argument, seeing as Fernando Tatis Jr.'s father, <laughs> Fernando Tatis Sr., was yeah. a major leaguer and has that sort of salary to fall back on. So maybe he's less, he's more willing to bet on himself, less willing to just say, I need this money now. It's being thrown at me. I should accept it. And so hopefully he's able to reach a bit more of a market rate type deal um, than Acuna was. Yeah, and if he doesn't, I'm just looking at his projections here in our, in our modeling. Um, you know, if he goes through arbitration, you know, he he'd be looking at so league minimum this year, and then something like 11.8 in his first year, 18.9 in his second year, of our, and then 28.3, which is also breaking that Betts' record. Mm-hmm. And so that's that works out to 59.5 for the next four years, and that's not bad. And then he'd be a free agent before he's even in his prime. So, right. like, there's not, I mean, if his dad knows what he's doing and can advise him, he'll be a free agent at 25 after making 59 million. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm okay with that, if I'm him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can, like you said, I can see the argument for, like, a six-year deal, maybe. Uh, kind of similar, different ages, but similar to what Alex Bregman did. Yeah, where he sacrificed a couple years of free agency, but he got for those years pretty much free agent rates, and he's still going to hit the, hit the open market at a reasonable free agent age. Um, so if so if Tatis took like a six or seven year deal, he could do that. Yeah. Or like you said, go for the big long one. It's hard to say. Oh, you should just take that because we've never seen a 14, 15 year contract before in this sport. The longest I think was. Harper 13. got 13, yeah. Harper got 13. Did Stanton get 12 or 13 Something on that like, big extension? I think 12, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, that's, so far, that's been the limit. I mean, yeah. neither of those guys were Fernando Tatis Jr., 22-year-old right. phenom at the time that they signed that. So you can make that argument that he's the guy that should get it. But until we see someone get it, I'm not going to I'm not gonna call it. I'm not going to predict that it happens. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from the Padres' point of view, one last point on that, you know, remember that they didn't work. They didn't milk his control years. They brought him up at the beginning of 2019, I think it was. So he's got four control. He's instead of milking it the way Chris Bryant's was, he's you know instead of five years of control, he's got four years of control because they had him mm-hmm. on the team from the start of that season. So the clock is starting to tick a little bit. I wouldn't say it's a huge sort of issue for them. You know, I think they're looking to lock him up, you know, for longer than four though. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe they can find a happy medium there. Yeah, definitely. Okay, just a couple quick rumors here. Marlins are showing some interest in Wilson Contreras. We talked about him a little bit earlier. Uh, the Marlins seem like they're kind of itching to make a move here. New GM. Um, got a lot of talent to work with. She's smart enough, I think, that she's not going to trade top her top prospect. And that's kind of been the industry mantra. You see it with Preller's mm-hmm. moves and the Padres. He held on to Gore and Abrams and Capisano and... You know, other teams are sort of following the same sort of mantra, like don't tra- don't trade your elite guys, the guys we have, like say over 30, let's say in in trade value. Yeah. But the ones below that are fair game, and if you have a team that you think is poised to be contending, maybe it's mm-hmm. worth it to 
trade your you know a, a nine and a seven and a six and a five and then you make up and you package that for Contreras. I think that's fine. Yeah, and the Marlins as a club, they have a pretty strong group of young pitchers that have all kind of shown what they can do at the major league level. The Sixtos, the Sandy Alcantara's, those kinds mm-hmm. of guys. Bullpen is fine, and they're they're making some veteran additions to it. Um, but the offense is a bit of a question mark. Uh, there's some young hitters there with potential. The Brian Anderson, he's probably the most established of them. Um, Isan Diaz and Jazz Chisholm haven't really shown what they could do yet. Um, they're, they're missing some thump here, and Contreras might be a good way to get that thump. Yeah, they've been obviously very disappointed with Alfaro. He's kind of fallen off the map, so they do mm-hmm. need some catcher help there too. And, and you might be thinking uh, they need a vet there to kind of help the, the young pitching staff. Uh, yeah. as well so if, yeah, i could see a fit yeah okay then the mets and brad hand we had kind of a fake out this morning <laughs> ken mm-hmm. rosenthal tweeted that they were nearing a, a completion on a two-year deal uh, and then he and some other sources walked it back a little bit said that their discussions and they, that the mets might be the front runners but no deal yet so we'll see how this develops over the next few days <coughs> but makes perfect sense i, I believe uh I believe it was Cohen. It was either Cohen or Alderson. I think it was Alderson, actually, who said if we had Cohen at the time, we might have claimed Brad Hand when the when yeah. Cleveland put him on waivers. Yeah. And so you know you know they like him. Just that alone suggests that they might be willing to pay more than other teams are if they were willing to claim him at one year $10 million and no other team was. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, at the time, you know, everyone was afraid to make any moves because mm-hmm. they – they didn't know what 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 the forecast was in terms of the season and the length and the pandemic and everything. So everyone's mm-hmm. just like cutting their losses, and so now the pieces are being picked up a little bit, and this is one of them. So I mean, I think fair value for him is in the nine million range, maybe ten. Um, you know, he he's got some red flags. That velocity drop is concerning mm-hmm. to a lot of teams, but he can. St- but he he knows how to pitch. He's always been one of these guys that has outperformed. I mean, he was a Rule Five guy, or was a waiver claim, like something like that. He was a cast off, and then he made something of himself. Didn't have the greatest of stuff, but he knows how to pitch. He's a very smart pitcher, and he gets the job done. So, um, I think they like that. Maybe he wouldn't be the closer there, um, but I don't know. Maybe he would. Um, and that that'd be a heck of a bullpen if they added him yeah. to it. Yeah, I mean, struggled last year, 501 ERA, ranked 21st in the majors, according to MLB Trade Rumors. Um, but adding hand to it, and Diaz had a solid bounce-back type year. That's a solid one-two punch, yeah. no matter no matter which one of them used the, as the closer, which one of them set up. Or if you, maybe you go a little flexible with it. Don't need to have May? to find roles. <clears throat> right, right, they signed Trevor May as well. Yeah, and, and if they use Lugo, Lugo's much better in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it than he is as a starter. So you add mm-hmm. him as kind of your, your kind of key middle relief guy, you know, to pitch the seventh or whatever. Um, you know, you got a strong, strong bullpen there. Yeah. But that would mean that you would also need to pick up a starter because they are still are still missing a starter there. Mm-hmm. So and I think that's I, probably what they're thinking. Yeah, I believe the plan is to move him back to the bullpen. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then last bit of rumor here um and it's something we're going to discuss for a little bit here is the red sox and andrew benintendi um so they've been discussing him in trade talks and it seems like a deal is inevitable this weekend as of this point at least i mean it could always could always fall apart it could always back up um the teams involved so far uh, initially miami was connected but it seems like their either their interest has waned or the teams haven't been able to come to anything and they've moved on to other teams um jim bowden 
reported that the Astros and the Pirates and the Rangers and the Athletics are four of the teams that are in on Benintendi, and those are various fits there. <laughs> um, we can get into that a little bit. And then apparently there's another mystery team, a mystery American League team that has had deeper discussions about him. Um, so that a lot to unravel there. We have Benintendi at 5.3 million in trade value, and that won't be changing at all. He had already agreed to his arbitration salary last season. He signed a two-year deal to buy out this year of arbitration. Um, so we don't need to make any adjustments there or anything. He has two years of control left. He's 26 years old. Very bad <laughs> and hurt in 2020. Um, so it's a bit of an uncertain outlook for him that, that partially explains why his value is so low. Uh, but what do you think about the Red Sox idea of trading him? Do you think they should? And what do you think that his market really should look like? I think first to the first part of your question, I think it's a tough one because you have to, so why would they be trading him? Um, Cause he's obviously his value is low and he's coming off a horrendous year and the year before that wasn't so great either. Um, so um, if you, you know, he's a mess right now. If you want to fix him, you know, you could argue that they should hold him and try to fix him, get him healthy, get him back on, on track. And then you've got, you know, you've only got him for two years, but you'd have a much at the deadline or even next year off season, you'd probably have a higher value player to trade with. Right. Um, so like, why are you trading now is my big question when he's low. The only answer to that is because you're trying to cut your losses because they think he's not fixable and there are red flags his sprint speed is going down and i know fangraphs has published some interesting articles about that how it's an indicator of future performance because it's not just mm -hmm. about your sprint speed about your athleticism as a whole right. which means potentially bat speed and various other things and you know he can't play center field he's already a bad left fielder so like there's he doesn't really fit the left field profile either because he doesn't have power he tried mm -hmm. it didn't work he's really more of a sort of opb contact guy so you know there's something there still. At least he's got that good eye, and if nothing else, and so that's mm -hmm. why he's got some value. But you know, if if they're if they're selling and Heim Bloom obviously is a smart guy, so if if he's selling low on him, it makes me suspicious that you know they've come to the conclusion they're just trying to cut their losses, which which is why he doesn't have a lot of value and why I'm, I'm suspicious of them getting anything you know, great in return. They've said that maybe they want, you know, an outfielder and a like an MLB ready prospect, like a triple A level, but that didn't mean anything about like quality. They yeah. just need perhaps like an in the back of the rotation innings in your guy who's maybe worth yeah. one or two in our trade values. And then maybe a prospect who's worth like three or four. And so maybe that's fine for them because they want to mm -hmm. cut their losses. So that's all I can figure. Yeah. I, I've never been in on Benintendi from day one. I mean, he was the number one prospect in baseball at one point. I forget if yeah. it was Baseball America or uh, MLB.com. But he was the number one prospect. And I looked at him in his college and the minors and everything, and all I saw was Ryan Sweeney. <laughs> and I look at him today, and I still see Ryan Sweeney. He just got to play a couple seasons with the juice ball. Yeah, that <laughs> I could mean, be. And I mean, Ryan Sweeney had some value. I'm not trying to knock Ryan Sweeney yeah. here or say that Ben Intendi's useless Swingles. or anything like that. Right. <laughs> But he's not – that Ryan Sweeney's value does not match up to Andrew Benintendi's name value. And so yeah. I think that's why a lot of people are 
people are going to be shocked at the return here. I, well, I'm the just other... going to flat out say that. The other thing is, so he had this, um, he had signed an extension a while back, so he's getting a guaranteed 6.6 .6 million right. for 2021, and then he'll be in his third year of arbitration. And typically, you don't go down in your third year. Mm -hmm. you typically, you go get a raise, as we said before. So, even if it's a bare minimum of like, you know, I have it modeled here as 6.7, it's probably going to be more than that. But that's, you know, that's thir that's 13 over 13 million for the next two years for a guy who's got all these red flags. Um, mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's hard. Like again, if you thought about if he were a free agent, what he what he, what would he get? I'm thinking David Dahl comes to mind. He got what three million. Um, yeah. But we're we're erring on the side of it wasn't that long ago when he was a forward player. Maybe there's still some upside. Maybe he's still fixable. But we're splitting the difference here and saying, okay, well, you know, you know, his projections are still sort of saying he's got some value. So it just doesn't seem like a lot. And yeah. and and whoever trades for him is hoping. For that he's fixed. Then there's the whole, you know, he missed most of last season with rib injuries. I'm not sure what was going on there, whether that was indicative of a more serious problem to come or whether that was just a, a temporary thing. I don't know, um, but it makes me wonder. Yeah, and where he is right now, 5.3, that's kind of this gray area, in my opinion, where from the Red Sox perspective, it's like, okay, if you were at like one or two million in surplus, it's like at that point, just hang on to him. Yeah. Whatever prospect you're going to get, not worth it might as well just bet on him bet on the upside yeah if he was at 10 million then it's pretty clear like we can get something pretty solid here that can actually help our major league team if we're out on him somebody's still going to be in on him at this with how mm -hmm. much value he has mm -hmm. so we can get something to help us let's trade him and he's kind of in this gray area where like i think there's a lot of there's there's some interesting players out there they can get for him in this five million ish range um but it's also far from a certainty that they get anything of true value or anything that can help their MLB team right away. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I were them. Um, the other situation that comes to mind, and this is completely not analogous, but when the Indians traded Corey, Corey Kluber, people thought, why are they trading him? And he was coming off of some injuries. He used to be great, and you know we made the case here that you know he's yeah he's getting older and he's he's kind of on. He's damaged goods, <clears throat> and they got rid. And they did trade him. They didn't get much back, and and he also had a high salary. And this is that's a completely different story. But but some of the same sort of indicators are here. Like he's got a salary. He's damaged goods. They're they just want to get rid of him, get whatever they can for him. I'm thinking there's some parallels there. Right, right. Um, and then just just one note on on those teams that have been connected to him. There's a wide range there of fits. <laughs> uh, so. As I mentioned, the A's, Astros, Rangers, Pirates, and Marlins, and the Marlins are reportedly out, and it looks like um, looks like Rob Bradford is tweeting that the Rangers also are probably out, which makes sense. I don't think they're, I think they're the worst fit of any of these teams. <laughs> like, right. they just signed Dahl, they, they already have the corner outfield spots kind of locked up, and as we've discussed, Benintendi's not really a center fielder, so probably yeah. not a great one. The Astros, I think, are a very good fit just because of their outfield situation right now. They yep. lost Josh Reddick, uh, Michael Brantley, and George Springer to free agency. Yep. And so they have some internal solutions, but nothing too exciting. And I think Benintendi represents higher upside than anything that they have in their system right now. Um, then the A's, you have to squint a little bit for them as well. They're pretty right-handed heavy overall, and they did lose Robbie Grossman, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, but they do still have a pretty crowded outfield. They have some younger 
left-handed outfielders that they might want to give a shot. Guys like uh, Seth Brown, Dustin Fowler, Kai Tom, Luis Barrera is kind of a rising name. So if they did get Benintendi, it's kind of just saying, we don't really think much of any of those guys. We're going to block them. So I don't know about that for them. And then the Pirates are just a weird timeline. And I think the largest connection there is Ben Sherrington. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that would be it, a flip situation. Yeah. And at that point, you, <laughs> you don't see that too often where one team flips a guy to another team that's going to try and flip a guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. It's a good so, point. I don't. Yeah. I, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I was. I think the Astros are the most logical fit for the reasons you mm-hmm. mentioned. They've got Kyle Tucker and I don't know what else. You know, yeah. Miles Straw. I don't know. Chaz like McCormick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they definitely need an outfielder. Um, yeah. And and they they probably think they can fix him. Um, they don't have much of a farm left to work with though, which is also sort of thing gets me thinking. You know, his his value is probably about more or less where we have it. Um, mm-hmm. And the same thing with the A's. Um, and he maybe, you know, the A's picked up Robbie Grossman two years ago um, when you thought, ah, he's going to block somebody. And it turned out to be a white move. It was a buy low move. So they're probably thinking mm-hmm. buy low here. The other sort of weird out of the box idea that I've seen some proposals come to mind is maybe they're trying to get rid of Piscotti. The, mm-hmm. the Red Sox have said they would pick up an underwater contract in exchange for prospects. They, they would they would take on some dead money. So. Mm-hmm. Total long shot here, just but hear me out. Maybe the A's are trying to move Piscotti, get rid of his salary, and you know they be he's like making seven and a half. Um, but Intendi's making six point six, so they'd save about a million dollars. But they'd also clear the roster spot. Now, having done that, they'd also get they'd also have to give more prospect capital to Boston, and that would be a high, higher price. Like I doubt they would, you know, include a, an AJ Puck in the deal, but maybe some. You know, a few middle-level guys like a Logan Davidson or a Brian Welvis or something. Some some package like that that would make up for Piscotti's negative value, mm-hmm. and then a little bit more to kind of cover Ben Tendi, and everybody's happy. The Red Sox get some prospects; they can cover Piscotti's salary. The A's move Piscotti, and they got you know a fix-it by low situation Ben Tendi. Mm-hmm. I know that's a total reach. I, I know it's crazy, and then so people have suggested it, but I just, I just thought it was worth mentioning. It's, it's <clears> not too crazy. When when the news first broke that Oakland was connected, I kind of thought. That was the first place my mind went to. Yeah. So I kind of made, I made my own proposal of Piscotti and factoring, uh, throwing in Manaya. Yeah. Uh, because he's he almost evens out Piscotti's negative value there. Yeah. Um, and the the Red Sox do need major league pitching, so Piscotti, Manaya, Luis Barrera, and a little bit of cash was was what. But I then thought the A's would be, be giving a, a starter, and they they can't yeah. afford to get rid of the starter. Right. Yeah. So that's that's partially my own doubts about. Manaya coming in there but that's uh that's for a different podcast <laughs> yeah i mean usually the more complicated deals are the ones that don't get worked out i mean they talk mm-hmm. but they're too hard to work out right it's probably more likely he goes to the astros for a couple of mm-hmm. mid-level prospects and we're done mm-hmm. another name that hasn't been officially connected to them but a lot of speculation is the phillies and i can yeah. see that as well yeah and they, um, they have some outfield holes yeah, exactly. And, and there's been a few trade proposals on our side about that as well. And mm-hmm. one of them involved Mickey Moniak, which would be like another fix-it situation mm-hmm. and a, a triple-level triple Kind a of a challenge pitcher. trade there. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, okay, our broken guy for your broken guy. <laughs> let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, on that note, let's quickly discuss uh, – we have kind of dual trades of the week here. One of them is a Benintendi deal from Trevi7T. And it is to the Astros, so it's just Benintendi, who we have at 5.3 million, and in exchange, it is right-handed pitcher, pulling him up, Hunter Brown at 3.6 million dollars, 
outfielder Chaz McCormick at 1.6, and left-handed pitcher Kit Sheets at 0.1. So this is kind of filling that mold in a way um, yeah. of that return that the Red Sox are looking for. They get a kind of outfield depth type in Chaz McCormick. They get a decent pitching prospect in Hunter Brown, although I think they are looking a little bit closer to the majors than Hunter Brown. Uh, he, he, his yeah. highest level is low A. Yeah, fair um, but it's you can't get too greedy. You're not going to get a good pitcher who's also in AAA and ready to go in exchange yeah. for Benintendi if his value is only at 5.3. Yeah, right. Um, and McC- McCormick's a little interesting. You can you can see a little bit of something there if you squint. Yeah, it could be. He, he feels like those... a sort of a right utility-ish guy to be mm-hmm. fourth outfielder type. I don't know. I'm not he... seeing him as a starter. I, it's, I don't know what it is about him, but he feels like one of those Carson Sestouli. You remember when he would make yeah. those picks for fan graphs, yeah. his yeah. fringe five? He's, he's one of those. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's just that's kind of a, an idea of what a return could look like for a the A perfectly unexciting return. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the top comment on this, I think it's perfect. It says, not an ideal trade for Red Sox fans, but Benintendi <laughs> has done everything possible to make this a fair deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of our resident regulars, not yes. in, is yeah. a Red Sox fan, knows his stuff. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's perfect way to put this. Yeah. Um, so our second one's a little bit more fun here, and I wish we had a little more time to get into this. We're probably going to have to yeah. speed through it a little bit. Reds, Blue Jays, this one's a little bit farther from the realm of possibility, <laughs> but a lot more fun. <laughs> it's so, fun to think about, yeah. Yes. So the Blue Jays have been trying to make moves all winter. Um, they still have a chance to make some moves. They're still in on Springer. They're still in on some other guys, but they missed out on Hendricks. They missed out on LeMahieu. You can tell they're trying to make a splash with their young core. And so here, they'd be acquiring Sonny Gray, who we have at $35.9 million, and Jesse Winker, who we have at $26 million flat, uh, from the Reds, so that's a total of $61.9. In exchange, they'd be giving up, I, I believe, their two top prospects here. Uh, Jordan Groshans, who's an infielder, at $40.1 million. And Simeon Woods Richardson, who's been a rising a rising prospect for them, they picked up from the Mets, mm-hmm. right-handed pitcher, at 24.5. So the deal comes out to 64.6 versus 61.9. And I like the idea, and it's fun to think about. I don't think the Blue Jays push that many chips in. <laughs> I think they'd be yeah. much more willing to spend money than <laughs> prospects. Yeah, because they're one of the few teams who does have money. So I mm-hmm. think... I think that's a fair point, but they they're in a good spot because they've also got a lot of prospect capital if they want to mm-hmm. use it. You know, these are actually their third and fourth uh, based on our numbers prospects, uh, Grosshans mm-hmm. and Woodruff, because they've got Austin Martin and Nate Pearson who's still a prospect. Right. Above I forgot about Austin Martin. I forgot that Pearson was still prospect eligible. Yeah, I know he's been there a while, uh, but they're they're still very highly rated. So so one could make a case that they've got the prospect depth to like do a trade like this, almost like the Padres have been doing, and not even mm-hmm. like. Um, and if they want to improve their major league team, and keep in mind, Sonny Gray still has what three years of control left. You know, they need another rotation starter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Winker, excellent hitter, eh, questionable on defense, left field yeah. DH type. Um, but they could use another bat as well because uh, they've got some mm-hmm. kind of tweeners in their outfield. Their outfield doesn't ne- doesn't feel settled to me. They got Guriel and Grishik, and like I'm not quite sure that's hey, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You know, they could use. I could see them using both of these guys. So it's mm-hmm. it's probably not realistic because it's a little. They probably don't want to trade these two prospects. That's what gives me pause. Mm-hmm. Gross hands, maybe I could see because he's probably blocked in the long run. More so than Woods Richardson, who I think they love, and I think whose value is only going to climb as we go. Mm-hmm. 
So gross sense I can see moving. I'm not sure the other one. So yeah, I think yeah. this is a bit of a long shot. Yeah, I think it's much more likely that you see a trade for just gray yeah. of maybe either Groshans for gray and some money or a second piece, or maybe yeah. a couple of those guys below the Groshans Woods Richardson Woods Richardson tier yeah, uh, yeah. for gray. Right. Um I love Jesse Winker. <laughs> I think he's he's a really fun hitter. Uh defense, like you said, is pretty questionable. I don't see a great fit there with the Blue Jays for him. Yeah. I think he probably does belong with an AL team if there's not going to be a DH in the NL. Yeah. I guess the Reds can just wait it out. He's he's not making much money. They can they can afford to wait a season with him providing yeah. negative value in the outfield and then move him to DH next year. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I like the idea of the Blue Jays pushing in, especially for a Sunny Gray type. And I think I think now is as good a time as any for them to do it. I mean, the Red Sox aren't looking yeah. like big contenders the rays have gotten worse this offseason the yankees are doing everything they can to tread water yeah and so it seems like the blue jays are the they're in a great position oops i forgot to mention the orioles darn my bad <laughs> um right. it's like the, the, the well forgive me for that <laughs> yes the blue jays are in this prime spot where they're the only team that i really see getting demonstrably better and that a lot of that's internal improvements and health and bigger contributions from Vlad Jr., from Pearson, from Bichette. Um, but a lot of that's that, yeah, as you mentioned, they have money, they have some prospect capital, they can make a move like this. Yeah, and, and to your point, you know, Guerrero and Bichette and, and, and those guys are still young and they haven't hit their prime right. yet. So you can, re- you can there's probably going to be some positive regression. In other words, they're going to get better as they go. Mm-hmm. So you might even be able to bank in a couple of extra wins there. Just, just because of their development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to be breathing down the neck of the Yankees. It's going to be a two-horse race, I think, mm-hmm. um, and especially if they make some more moves. So um, I think it's theirs to lose if they – Yeah. Well, the second place – a wild card is there to lose, let's let's just say. Or second place in, in the AL East. But mm-hmm. potentially, you know, the AL West – excuse me, AL East uh, crown if they if they play the cards right. Mm-hmm. Guerrero is still 21. I know, he right? Broke projection <laughs> systems when he was a prospect because he went ahead and hit 402 at Double A. Yep. <laughs> and in the majors, the best he's done was last year's 115 WRC plus. I mean, you know, there's it, he's not a bust. I, I'm not calling him a bust yet. There's so much more in the tank there if he lifts the ball a little bit more. Yeah. He's got so much raw power, so much bat to ball ability that he's got so much in there that if he even takes a bit of a step forward. God, he could be one of the better hitters in the league. He could be yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I think defense is the question mark. I don't think mm-hmm. he's a third baseman, even if he right. loses some weight, like he said. And, you know, I don't think they think that long term. I think he's he's going right. to be solid at first base, though, and maybe a little bit better of a first baseman than people think. Yeah, you kind of have to give him a chance still, since he is only 21, and it's so yeah. much more value if he is, even for the next five years, if he can play, like I said, the Miguel Cabrera route, just play some average third base for a few years. Yeah. The force transitioning back to first base, that there's so much value in that that yeah. they're going to give him a couple more chances for it. But right. I, I do agree with you long term that he's most likely ended up there in the next few years. Yeah. Okay, so those are our trades of the week. Uh, I, I Sorry, I forgot to mention that second one was from JFanTeddy2021. Um, so if you'd like a trade to be featured, go ahead and submit the trade through our simulator, tr- submit it to our trade boards, and if it uh, gets enough attention enough likes we'll go ahead and feature it on the podcast so we did have um an article that you wrote about francisco lindor and how his trade kind of explains what we've been saying and confirms what we've been saying on a few podcasts now 
about how difficult it's going to be to move trademark, uh, move large salaries in this trade market. Um, and you kind of break down some examples of players within each of these different tiers of tradeability, um, given their contract, given their value, all that. And I, I think it's a really good article. I also think we're out of time. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna link it in the episode. I'm gonna recommend that you all go read it. And next time, if it's slower, we can definitely definitely get into it because I think it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, thank you for that. And I did get some good feedback on that, which surprised me a little bit, but I was mm-hmm. I was pleased to hear it, and I think it's um uh, it's worth a read. Mm-hmm, definitely. So that'll be linked below along with a whole bunch of the other stuff we've talked about today. <laughs> I appreciate any of you who have stuck with us this far. Maybe maybe <laughs> divvy this up into a couple different car rides or something like that. I don't know. Um, but that's just that's just what happens when MLB decides to do nothing for two months and then do everything in the span of two weeks. So <laughs> if this trend continues, so will our trend of longer episodes. Um, but in any in any event, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more. Hopefully we have some big news to discuss by then. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.